This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning, everyone. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. He's still in Vegas. And uh, it's very fitting, though, because it's actually Valentine's Day. Happy or Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Joined here with uh, Terry South and Colin Tanner. Yesterday, as you know, you may remember that yesterday was Love Yourself Day. There was some confusion on, on what the actual title of the day was. I thought it was Love Me Day and was confused why I wasn't feeling the love from anybody in here. Was a little hurt. I apologize for that. Uh, so I went out and uh, got a haircut and uh, went home, and my wife called me Chop Suey because I no longer have hair, and I look like Pee Wee Herman. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But today is Valentine's Day, so forget about yourself. Don't love yourself anymore. <laughs> love, love your significant other and all those around you. I guess you could... Throw yourself in there with everyone else. But, uh, yes, get a flower, get some chocolates. Terry, have you uh, changed your mind about getting your wife a gift? No, my son did. Oh, okay. He changed your mind. No, that was the plan. Oh, he changed his mind. The plan is it's not me. It's about the kids. It's the kids. Okay. the kids who get them stuff. So uh, I was planning on taking my uh, two daughters a flower. I thought that would be a cute idea because they get chocolates everywhere else. And my parents are in town, and my mom went out and got them flowers. So oh. now I need to figure something else out. See, I now, now i got to show up my girlfriend. Um, I go out to my car this morning to get here for work, and there are Valentine's balloons tied to the handles of my car and oh. a bag of just my favorite snacks on the hood of my car. Okay, enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because once goes, you're married, goes it goes quick. <laughs> it's like, oh, what do you want to do? Nothing I'll enjoy married. the little things for now. Happy Valentine's Day. Colin is the optimist and the love-struck one in the room. The, though yesterday we had uh, Kim Giles. Yes. She was she, – she had the uh, – it was a phrase of something like, you're the best decision I've ever made or something of that nature. Yeah. I'm really lucky to be married to you. She said yeah. that was yeah. something one. like yeah. that. A phrase – and I, I used one of those on my wife last night. And? Ooh. She burst out laughing. Oh. She just looked at me like, what, what do you want? What did you break? What's going on? You know, I'm like, oh, willing hey. to bet you. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm willing to bet you were anticipating that reaction. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm sure it, yeah. you've been married long enough that, yeah. yeah. She knows that's not happening. Yeah. Well, go home and use some of those good one-liners on your wife Maybe and your she'll girlfriend. laugh at you. Maybe yeah. she won't. It was a good moment. Yeah. We'll feel the love today. I can feel it today. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, we will get to some more fun Valentine's Day discussions and topics, including one coming up in the second hour with Caitlin Thomas about the worst Valentine's Day gifts ever. Luckily, I don't think I've ever had a bad Valentine's Day gift. But we'll get to that fun stuff here in just a bit. But first, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Michael Flynn, National Security Advisor, resigned Monday night after it was revealed that he had misled Vice President Mike Pence and other top White House officials about his conversations with the Russian ambassador to the United States, according to a person close to the Trump administration. Mr. Flynn, who served in the job for less than a month, stepped on after uh, days of reports that uh, he had spoken to 
an ambassador from Russia in late December about American sanctions against Russia weeks before Mr. Trump's inauguration. Mr. Flynn previously had denied that uh, he had any substantive conversations with the ambassador. Mr. Pence repeated that claim in television recently as early as this month. I believe it was on five different Sunday morning shows the same day. But on Monday, a former administration official said the Justice Department last month warned the White House that Mr. Flynn had not been fully forthright about his conversations with the ambassador. As a result, the Justice Department feared that Mr. Flynn would be vulnerable to blackmail from Moscow. That would be, I would think that there was some pressure for him to resign there. But as it says, they knew a month ago. The Justice mm. Department said a month ago. So right about when he was sworn in. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, in a <laughs> Moving on. In a 53, we'll get to more of that in a minute. In a 53-47 vote, the Senate confirmed Steve Munchen as a, tre- a Treasury Secretary on Monday night. Earlier in the day, reports cast out on his confirmation chances, citing four Republicans said they would unsure of their votes. A former Goldman Sachs banker. Uh, Munchen has been criticized for his coziness with Wall Street. During his confirmation hearing, he came under fire for failing to disclose some $100 million in assets and uh, failed to disclose his leadership role in a Cayman Island-based ba- investment bank, which is, you know, tell people what's going on. He also, I don't know if he really disclosed his involvement in Suicide Squad. But as as we all know, suspect is a movie. You don't you don't have to disclose that. Like if you want to become, let's just I'm spitballing here. If you you, want to be the president of the United States, well, the president, it's different rules, as we keep being told. It's It's a different ball game. Different ball game. No, he needs to pay for Suicide Squad. Yeah, that was didn't quite Mm, meet the the measure there. So the vote, as uh, expected, along party lines, but uh, they had enough. They didn't need a vice presidential tiebreaker. Also, the Trump administration has reportedly filed to appeal the Ninth Circuit Court ruling that effectively continued the block on the president's anti-refugee executive order. The administration is not yet taking the case to the Supreme Court, however, and will seek cases against the ban in Washington and Minnesota until the Ninth Circuit ruling can be appealed. The Trump administration will likely seek an appeal before a larger panel of judges. And finally, there won't be any boxes of chocolate, heart-shaped balloons, or red roses in Pakistan this Valentine's Day. On Monday, just one day before the holiday, the Islamabad High Court in Pakistan, the capital, issued a nationwide order banning any Valentine's Day festivities, decorations, or references in government or public spaces and prohibiting the media from discussing or promoting the holiday. The ban, which is effective immediately, does not extend to shops and restaurants. The court's order followed a citizen's petition arguing that the holiday goes against the teachings of Islam and should be banned immediately. Terry, it's it's not a ban. No, what's a ban? It's not a, it's not a ban. In this case, it's a ban. <laughs> the holiday is also banned in Saudi Arabia, and citizens of Malaysia and Saudi Arabia have been punished for celebrating the holiday. Wow. Oh, so they're not had, feeling the love there. Guess we all got to stop. Yeah, well, no, Pakistan. Mm. Pakistan's got to stop. So, yesterday. Yes. You were asking about the Maple Wall. Yes. Is there a concern... About our border between the United States and Canada. There's so much concern about the southern border. What about the northern border? And you called it the Maple Wall. I think we need to leave that border open. You in mean case leaf? We, yeah. No, it's in syrup. We need, to, we need to leave that open in case we need to make a quick escape. Possibly. There have been reports of um, people crossing the border into Canada. And there's video being people being picked up by the Canadian Border Patrol. Yeah, but they're uh, like Syrian refugees with green cards, and they're not uh, sure if they're going to be allowed to stay here. So they're just trying to get to Canada because Canada 
is more opening that way. So yesterday, Prime Minister Trudeau visited mm-hmm. the White House, and one of the questions – there's actually only two. We'll talk about that in a second, too. Uh, and, and this is what Trump said. They asked him about the northern border. border clip one. Never be totally confident, but uh, through the incredible efforts already, I see it happening, of formerly General Kelly, now Secretary Kelly – uh, we have uh, really done a great job. We're, uh, we're actually taking people that are criminals, very, very hardened criminals in some cases, with, uh, which a, with a tremendous track record of, of abuse and problems, and we're getting them out. And that's what I said I would do. I'm- so Trump really didn't answer the question. Yeah, kind of the <laughs> I was going to say, course. I didn't hear anything in there that yeah. uh, answered so the question. The question was northern border. He goes, you really can't be sure. And then he just starts talking about how we're going to stop people on the southern border. Now, the problem with that is that press conference, there was two questions. I don't know what the second question was, but the first one was about our border wall with Canada, which no one is concerned with because the national security advisor talked to Russia and what is the – you know, before he was, you know, possibly breaking a law, we're not sure, and he lied to people, and the vice president's now going on TV saying he didn't lie, and then a week later, okay, he mm. lied. So, so all this is going on. Every reporter in the room, apparently except for that one that asked the other question, wants to know about Michael Flynn. Yes. But they asked two questions, and they both walk off the stage, and that's the only opportunity to talk to the president for the day. Two questions? Why Why even bother coming out? Well, there's two questions, and they talk to – I don't know if I have their name. The They they pick someone from a local D.C. TV station and then someone from a uh, a blog that has been Trump-friendly as other – as the AP reports, right? So in other words, they're not <laughs> they're not going to people to talk about the big question of the day. They, of course. They hit two people. So they're, are they stacking the deck when it comes to press conferences? And if they do that, are they worth – having anymore right type of thing so that happened uh john carl abc reporter shouted a question about flynn but he was ignored fox's jennifer griffin she covers the white house says no question about flynn's status even though it's leading every newscast and she says are these planted questions on the washington side the meaning the questions that are being asked washington post reporters uh, reporters covering the white house who failed to ask the president about the most pressing news of the day should be ashamed of themselves because they have very limited access limited time and we're worried about a border wall with Canada instead of the national security advisor and if he's going to have a job in the morning. Well, and plus, Michael Flynn had his job for a month, yes. and Trump's not going to want to. Like you constantly say on the show, he doesn't want to cover anything that sheds him in a, a negative light. Trump's a winner. Yes. He's going to be a winner. So this morning, Representative, Representative Chris Collins from New York. Have you ever heard of him? Chris Collins. Chris Collins. Hmm. The answer would be no. because uh, <laughs> You read my mind. People are concerned that leadership of the Republican Party isn't commenting on this situation. Right? So this guy comes out on CNN. Play clip three. You are the first member of the GOP uh, that we have had a chance to talk to about this. No word from Ryan. No word from McConnell. Uh, when you have a man of Flynn stature resign and in his own letter saying that he misled maybe even lied to other members of the White House. Why is everybody so quiet? Uh, well, it's uh, uh, Valentine's Day, and I guess they're having <laughs> breakfast with their wives. Uh, I'm sorry to see General Flynn go. I don't know the Day. details of what transpired. I do know General Flynn. I know that he's uh, very loyal to President Trump. I do know he's a great American. He has stepped down, obviously, something he felt was in the best interest of this country. We move on from here. I'm not going to be one 
nor would I hope others would dwell on uh, uh, the situation or pile on, to use another term. So don't dwell on it. Just don't worry uh, about I'm, it. Sorry, Chris, don't drag St. Valentine into this, please. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. So He's so never liked Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day. Day, so we're not talking about it yet. But, wow. But also he hopes we could all just move on, right? <laughs> Before it happened, there was a situation. Uh, General Flynn ran the uh, Army Intelligence, basically. Department of Intelligence for the Army. Kind of, It's like a military CIA type thing. He had some problems where he shared some information with some allies that maybe he shouldn't have shared. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're, you're, you're kind of – there's a, a pattern of behavior where there's two or three instances where he had some bad judgment, right? During the campaign, he retweeted conspiracy-type stories against Hillary Clinton, which weren't true. But here you have a guy of his stature that should be able to look at information and tell what's true and what's not. And he's retweeting this sort of conspiratorial-type stuff. So again, mm. judgment, and then so, but you're not supposed to talk about any of this. Just move on. Just move on. It's important time for our country. Don't talk about it. Come on, guys. It's Valentine's Day, <laughs> and then it's Valentine's Day. So they're they're kind of Why busy. Give us a break. Kel- Kellyanne Conway, the counselor who was last week counseled, she went on uh, the Today Show. Talked to Matt Lauer. They had her on the they Today had her on Show. The Today wow. Show. And so here's a clip uh, four. So had he not resigned, the president would continue with him as national security advisor, even though he misled the vice president and the administration about the contents of that call? That fact is what became unsustainable, actually. I I think misleading the vice president really was uh, the key here. But the fact is that General Flynn continued in that position and was in the presidential daily briefings, was part of the leader calls as recently as yesterday. That makes no sense. Last month, the Justice Department warned the White House that General Flynn had misled them and that as a result, he was vulnerable to blackmail. And and, and at that moment, he still had the complete trust of the president? Matt, I'm telling you what the president has said, which is that uh, he's accepted General Flynn's resignation and he wishes him well and that we're moving on. There are th- at least three candidates. So, again, they're moving on. So we Just used to have alternative facts, but now we have unsustainable facts. I guess. Yes. So alternative he, facts. He was in meetings yesterday in his position, even though a month ago they were told that he may have been compromised and he could be open for blackmail because of his actions with the Russian uh, ambassadors that's got to be an awkward month you know when your time is is done at an office and everybody knows it and there's just <laughs> you've, you've given your you, you haven't necessarily given your two weeks but it's kind of you know it's, on, it's coming it's up on the wall, yeah. it's valentine's what day gonna, what am i going to talk to this person about i don't know what to say to them so it, it was interesting seeing the as the article i read the befuddled matt lauer and then yeah. kellyanne conway going as we've said, he submitted his resume, and we're just going to move on. You know, so, <laughs> Matt's like, well, he's like, I, why was he in meetings? If, if you, I mean, they said what broke the camel's back was he lied to the vice president. That happened two, three weeks ago. He's still in meetings. Yeah, that why, is. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, to get the vice president up there and with full confidence have him make those statements. Well, he made those statements on a Sunday, and I think by Wednesday. They started getting transcripts of phone calls between Flynn and the ambassador where they're like, wow, we can see what you talked about here. (laughs) Oh, well, at least Kellyanne Conway didn't say, come on, it's Valentine's Day. Just give us a break. Alternative facts. Yes. Well, we uh, we wish Michael Flynn 
we wish him uh, well, even though he won't be in Trump's cabinet anymore. I, th- I believe he was retired before he took on that position. So go back and enjoy retirement and, uh, you know, find your new dream, which is interesting because coming up next, we're going to be speaking to uh, Dr. Mark Rank, who's going to be talking to us about the American dream, the evolution of that, and uh, what that means exactly when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show. America has long been famed as a land of opportunity, a place where anyone can come and work themselves from rags to riches. But is that still the case? Well, here with us to talk about the American dream is Ph.D. Mark Rank, a professor of of, uh, social welfare at Washington University in St. Louis and a co-author of Chasing the American Dream, Understanding What Shapes Our Fortunes. Uh, Dr. Rank, thank you so much for coming to The Matt Townsend Show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks a lot for having me on. So this is such an interesting topic and, and one that I'm sure has changed over the years. But uh, I, I know I noticed that you've done a couple of different types of research. So what is it about these uh, the research that you've conducted that is that is unique or what, what's so special about this research that you've done? Well, I think um, we've kind of uh, like on this particular question, the American dream and some of the other work I've done, of approached it from several different perspectives in terms of research. So <clears throat> one thing that we've done is to <clears throat> do some uh, interviews with, uh, sort of in-depth interviews with people from a whole range of, of, of lifestyles uh, and careers and things like that, and, and gotten some knowledge, you know, kind of from the ground up. And then we've also done a lot of um, uh, empirical analysis that has looked over time at Kind of what happens to Americans in terms of their economic fortunes, and so I think it's kind of bringing together several different ways of thinking about these questions that's uh, unique. So tell me, I'm curious. This is interesting here. The the poverty risk calculator. What what more can you tell us about that? Oh yeah. So so the idea behind that was um, I've done a lot of work in the past. It's looked at this question of what's the, what's the typical risk that an American at some point in their lives might experience poverty. And so I and my co-authors have, have done a lot of research on that. But uh, I was thinking, you know, it, it would be really important to be able to kind of put that research into people's hands. And so what we've developed is this poverty risk calculator, and we have a website dedicated to that. We're actually doing a, a next version of that that will come out in a couple of weeks, but it's, it's online now. And what it does is it's, it works the same way as the heart kind of disease risk calculators do, which is to say, okay, put in some information about yourself, your age, your education, race, gender, all of those kinds of things. And based on that, you'll get a probability of what the likelihood of experiencing poverty in the next 5, 10, or 15 years is. And again, it's kind of like the idea when you go to those websites with heart disease uh, calculators that ask you for your cholesterol and your blood pressure and these right. things, and then, yeah. and then say, you know, your risk in the next 10 years is, you know, 20% or whatever. So we've done the same thing, except it's with economic risk. And um, I think it's really important because, it, it, first of all, 
going there, you can see what your individual risk is. And for a lot of people, it's not trivial. You know, it, it depends, but um, it, it may be fairly significant. And, but also you can see how that risk varies depending on things like race and education. So it really gives you a gauge of kind of the inequalities in America. That's so, that's fascinating. Is there any data on how accurate this calculator is? Well, you know, it's based on, there's a, the longest running longitudinal data set in the world is, is called the Panel Study of Income Dynamics. And it started in 1968, um, and it's a national uh, sample, and it's been running every year since then. And so the numbers in the calculator are based on, you know, 40 or 45 years of information. And, you know, it's a very large sample. So, you know, the, the confidence on those statistics is, is pretty good. Um, of course, there's some, you know, there's some variation and, and some error in there. But overall, you know, we have a, a pretty good degree of confidence in what those statistics are. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the American Dream because one of the studies that you or you were talking about the studies that you've done, and uh, you mention here in this article that you there are three basic elements to the American Dream. So can you talk about those? Sure. Absolutely. So you know the question we wanted to sort of the the first third of the book kind of looks at this question of. Well, what is this thing called the American Dream? Um, you know, a lot of people throw that name around, and what do we actually mean by that? And so I sort of felt that there were three key elements of the American Dream based both on the interviews with people, again, from all walks of life, and survey research as well. And those three elements are, the first one is that people say the American Dream is really about the freedom to pursue my passion whatever that might be. So whatever I'm interested in, it's the, the dream is being able to really fulfill that potential and that passion and to be able to kind of follow your, your desire in terms of how you'd like your life to live out. So that's, that's the first thing that people often said. The second thing is something that we're a, a lot uh, familiar with, and that is the idea of, you know, if I work hard and I play by the rules, I should have a decent life economically. And so it's this notion that economic security, having a decent life, having, you know, being able to support a family and your kids and that kind of thing is an important part. And it's part of this bargain that if you work hard, if you play by the rules, you should have a decent life. And that's the kind of the second part of the American dream. And then the third part is a little, a little, um, a little, um, more nebulous, but still really important. And that is the idea that the American dream is really about hope and optimism. It's about that things are going to get better. It's the idea of the immigrant coming to this country, looking for a better life. Right. It's the idea of parents sacrificing so their children will have a better life. It's the idea that things are moving forward. And so it's that notion of kind of the next horizon um, that's, I think, an important third component of the American dream. So those three are, are kind of the key elements that I feel, at least, is, part of the, is, a, is, is an important part of the American dream. That's so interesting because uh, I lived in Russia for a couple of years, and the mentality there is if I want to be successful in life, I need to learn English and move to America. 
that was yeah. that those were the the two criteria for them basically but i'm curious to know obviously somebody who was born here in the country and uh, has you know experienced all of the freedoms that we enjoy here versus somebody who is coming from russia or from you know another foreign country they're probably going to have varying ideas of what the american dream is what are what would you say are some of those differences or how do they vary well, that, that's, a, that's a great question, and actually in the um, interviews we did, we, uh, we interviewed, it was uh, maybe eight or ten uh, people who were fairly recent arrivals from other countries, and surprisingly, they kind of said the same things that we're talking about. That is, you know, I've come to America for, op- for, for opportunities, for a new life, uh, to get you know more education to improve myself for myself and my and my children so um, you know that idea I think resonates in other countries and the the other thing that's interesting about your question is there really is only one country that has this idea of an American dream um, in other words there really isn't anything like the Russian dream or the the Danish dream or something right. like that. Ours is the only country that kind of has this idea of a dream. And so um, that really, I think, resonates with people around the world who, who do come here and are looking for to build kind of a new life with new opportunities and to get ahead. So um, I think it's, I think it's uh, you know, it's, it's somewhat universal. That is such an excellent point. I I don't think we think about that too much that, you know, people in America don't sit at home and just say, oh, if only I could go to Russia. Right. If only. The Russian dream. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not on the radar. Yeah. To me, it's it's a nice place to visit. Um, so I want to get back to the, the second point that, that you talked about. If you, if you work hard, if you play by the rules, then mm-hmm. you should be able to get ahead in life. Do you feel like that is true? So here's, that's a, another great question. Here's where I come down on this. Cause a lot of, you know, a lot of times people say exactly that, you know, if you just work hard, put your nose to the grindstone, you'll be able to get ahead. I've talked to a lot of people, done a lot of research on this question, and my conclusion is this, that hard work is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for getting ahead. And here's what I mean by that. It's hard to imagine, no matter what your station of life, that hard work isn't important in terms of moving forward and getting ahead. You know, whether you're, uh, you know, middle class, lower class, upper class, in order to kind of reach your goals, you're going to have to exert some effort in, in hard work. Okay. However, there are lots of people who work hard that don't get ahead. And so, in other words, it's no guarantee that just by working hard, you will get ahead. So there are many other things that come into play. So what I just mentioned, the social class that you're born into, if you're, if you're upper class, you're going to have certain advantages and opportunities that folks born in poverty are simply not going to have, which makes it more difficult for them to move up. So, you know, I know a lot, I've interviewed a lot of people who are in poverty or low income. Uh, most of them are, are working very hard, but because of kind of structural constraints and other things that may be, uh, may be out there, it can prevent people from getting ahead. Now, some of them will get ahead, and there are, there are cases, and I interview in the book, cases of rags to riches where that does happen. But for every person that that happens, there are probably four or five in which that doesn't happen, even though they're pretty hardworking. So 
that's kind of how I look at this, at the question of how important is hard work in terms of getting ahead, that it's a, it's a necessary condition, but it's not necessarily a guarantee for getting ahead. Right. And I think, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that there are plenty of people who feel like they are working as hard as they can and they're just not getting ahead. And, you know, if you want evidence of that, just look at uh, the results of the, the recent election. I think a lot of people felt like their voices weren't being heard and they were doing all that they could and still weren't coming out on top. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, that raising the sort of the current political climate, I think, is, is a really interesting point because it has been the case that, you know, in the United States over the last 30 or 40 years, um, what's happened is we've been producing kind of more and more low-wage jobs. And so people are working, but they're feeling, and they're right, that they're not getting ahead. So I was just talking in my class yesterday. If you look at uh, full-time wages for male workers um, in the labor force, those wages in, 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 2000 and, in 1973 in 2015 dollars was about fifty four thousand dollars in 2015 they were earning about fifty two thousand dollars so in other wow. words over the last forty years wages have not improved one bit over you know over this period of time and so people feel just like you said you know i'm working hard but i'm not getting ahead and i think that's reflective in what's happened in the economy over this period of time Mm. And, you know, uh, getting back to what you just said, I'd, I'd love to continue on with that. You talked about the change in wage over the years. How has the American dream itself changed over the years? Well, that's, a, that's a, another excellent question. And some people have written about how, um, you know, in, in kind of specific ways that the American dream has changed. Um, so, for example, after World War II, it was kind of the idea of, you know, having the house and the white picket fence and, and you know, uh, two cars in the garage and a vacation and that kind of thing. Um, but I think what, what I've tried to focus on are things that are have kind of remained important over a long period of time. And I think those three things that I mentioned, this idea of freedom to pursue, of economic security, and of hope, of optim- hope and optimism have kind of remained for long periods of time. And so Although some of the specifics have changed, um, I think those things have remained. The other thing that's interesting about this question of overtime, the American dream was actually coined by a guy in, uh, it was like 1931, and he wanted to title his book The American Dream. And his publisher said, nobody's going to buy a book about a dream, and rejected the title. Now, the book was about the American dream, and it was really the first time somebody really talked about that. But it was interesting that the publisher at the time said, you know, that's not a title that's going to sell. Um, so, you know, anyway, hmm. my, my title does have Chasing the American Dream in it. <laughs> well, uh, I would buy it. Good, good, good. <laughs> uh, one, more, one more question before we take a break here, uh, Dr. Rank. Um, what role do you think education plays in the American dream today? So education is, uh, you know, really critical in terms of um, this pathway to the American dream, which is the notion of equality of opportunity. So in America, the idea is that everybody should be entitled 
to certain opportunities that allow you to get ahead. And, and probably the most important of those opportunities is education. So I view it as absolutely critical to the idea of achieving the American dream. And, you know, unfortunately in our country, and we can talk more about this after the break, but, um, you know, we, we don't have a quality of opportunity when it comes to education. So some American kids are getting, you know, a really good education, others are not. And that really flies in the face of the core American value that, you know, everyone should be entitled to at least a quality of opportunity. Mm, absolutely. Uh, Dr. Rank, thank you so much for being with us. We will take a quick break and we'll continue the discussion. We'll talk more about uh, education and the role that plays in the American dream. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's still in Vegas, not uh, at the craps table and not uh, drinking, but having a good time with his lovely wife, Marty. And I don't know if he wanted me to tell you what his wife's name was, but there it is. We'll take a quick break when we come back. We'll talk more about the American dream with Dr. Rank. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Ph.D. Mark Rank, who is a professor of social welfare at Washington University in St. Louis and co-author of Chasing the American Dream, Understanding What Shapes Our Fortunes. Mark is widely recognized as one of the foremost experts and speakers in the country on issues of poverty, inequality and social justice. He is also of uh, Living on the Edge, The Realities of Welfare in America and One Nation, Underprivileged, uh, Why American Poverty Affects Us All. In addition to writing books, Dr. Rank has published articles in numerous academic journals across a wide variety of fields, and he rejoins us here on the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Rank, thank you so much for being here with us. You're welcome. So before we went to break, we were talking about uh, what role education plays in the American dream, and it seems like... And I may be way off on this, but it seems like today, more than ever, you can get a fantastic education and still just struggle to to realize that American dream. Do we is that a problem that that is that a problem with our country? Do or do students have unrealistic expectations? What what role does that play? Well, I think it's. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the uh, changes in the economy over time that, you know, I think you're right um, that uh, there are students that are going to, to college, getting a good education. My two daughters are an example. They've gotten, you know, a really good education. But, you know, they're having a hard time, you know, finding a, a good job, a good position, um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that we really need to focus on, and it's a difficult question, I don't have the answer to it, but it's the idea that, you know, really what we should be focusing on are how do we create enough good quality jobs that can support families, um, you know, that have the benefits that are necessary to, to have a decent life, um, and really trying to create those kind of jobs. And I don't know if that's, you know, thinking about, 
you know, new technologies or things like this, but I do know that it's really, that that's really important. And, and that also is, is reflective in what we were talking about before with the political uh, climate. That is, you know, it used to be manufacturing jobs kind of uh, were, were good-paying jobs, had benefits, people could support a family. Those jobs, ha- as we know, have, have uh, you know, diminished over time. And so people are struggling on, you know, service sector jobs that just don't, don't pay much and don't have benefits. And so that's really a, a really core question for America to face. That's right. And you see a lot of those jobs that are, you know, 28 hours a week or 30 hours a week, right. just right at the threshold right. where they, they don't have to pay you those benefits. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, one of, the, one of the things that, you know, I talk about in, in some of my work and in my classes is, you know, the United States is, you know, uh, you know has got some great things about it. Um, but there are also some things that aren't so great. And, and we're really an outlier when it comes to kind of providing certain basic kind of needs, uh, things like, you know, health care, child care, or, you know, everybody entitled to a really good education. We, we kind of fall short in terms of those things. And I think, you know, in the future, we need to really face those questions. That's a perfect segue to the, the next question I wanted to ask you. You mentioned earlier in the program how there really is no um, – there's no big dream other than the American dream. You know, we, Americans don't really sit at home and think, oh, if only I could get to such and such a country. But there, in your opinion, are there other countries today that, that might offer a better opportunity to reach those economic uh, freedoms and securities than, than we might be able to offer? Yeah, that's, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, there, there is uh, a uh, social epidemiologist that has done a lot of work. His name is Richard Wilkinson, and um, he talks about, he says, if you really want to experience the American dream, uh, go to Denmark. Now, why does he say that? Um, he says that because, actually, if you look at um, economic data, there's, there's actually more upward mobility in some of the European countries like Denmark, uh, Holland, Germany, these kind of countries. Um, than there is in the United States, but also they do provide, you know, in terms of their social welfare state, they do provide a lot of the things that are important to a decent life, like, you know, that you're, you're guaranteed health care and good, good quality child care and a good education and these kinds of things. So, you know, I think we can, we can learn some lessons from some other countries. We often kind of think of ourselves as, you know, you know we are the leader and this kind of thing, but uh, we can learn some important lessons from other countries, and I think, think those countries can show us um, what it is to have a good quality life. So, yeah. Do you feel like do you feel like the current administration or past administrations have been open to adopting some of those practices or policies, or are we arrogant? I mean, what what can we do to make some of these changes so where our American dream could be actually more like the American dream? I think we need to, and I've spent a lot of my time on this question, I think we need to shift our understanding of some of these fundamental issues. So what do I mean by that? Take the case of poverty. We often think of poverty as, you know, it happens to somebody else. You know, why should I care about this? You know, I might feel bad for the person, but I, I'm really not invested in it. 
And, and what my work has shown is that actually poverty affects all of us in one way or another. And if you change the mindset, I think you can then change the way that we treat the problem and act towards the problem. So I think we need to, have the, we need to kind of shift our focus and say, you know what, we're all in this together. We all have, um, there's all a vested interest in, for example, Every child in this country should be able to reach their potential. Now, how can we do that? Well, we can do that through, you know, education and things like that. But that's the kind of mindset that we need, is how can we have a country that everybody is really able to fulfill their potential? And that, as I said earlier, is really what the American dream is about. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting because you talked about uh, children and poverty. You hear stories about, you know, these successful business people saying, my father came to this country and he had $5 in his pocket and now here I am. How how often does that happen? Realistic? How realistic is that and does it happen often? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. So it does happen. Um, but it's it's the exception and so i don't have the statistics right here but i was looking you know i've i've done some work on that question and if you're born in you know poverty you know kind of the the rags to riches um the chances of of reaching the top quintile in terms of income is pretty low you know it's like maybe only about five percent of folks who are born in the bottom quintile make it to the top wow um now, there are some people who do that, and as I said before, you know, I've interviewed them, and, and that's really admirable and great. But what we do is, is here's what we, we say. Well, look, that person did it, therefore you can do it. And the problem with that is that it, it, it sort of um, uh, negates all of these other kinds of constraints that people are facing. So, you know, if you're born into poverty, you're probably not going to get a very good education. That's going to affect your ability to, to move forward and so on. And so, again, what I think we need to be saying is how can we make opportunities available to all Americans? And how can we have a society in which all Americans, again, are able to reach their potential? And if we do that, we will have uh, just a dynamic economy, a dynamic society, the kind of, uh, of place where I think people would really like to uh, live and, and grow up and, and raise their children in. So I think you just answered my next question there. I was going to ask you, just in closing here, uh, Dr. Rank, do you feel like we need to change our definition of what the American dream is or do you feel like we need to keep fighting uh, for government to make those changes so that we can have those opportunities that will make our current idea of what the American dream is possible? I would, you know, I would probably lean more towards the latter to say, you know, the, I think that the American dream is a really important idea and it's really core to what this country has been about and is about. And one of the things that we need to do is to have government work for people and, and work for them to get ahead. Um, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, huge, big government kinds of programs, but I think there are things that we can do that can really, again, make our society a dynamic society and, an, and a, a dynamic economy. And, um, and I think we do need to to, to kind of rethink the role that social policy should play in terms of accomplishing that. 
Well, Dr. Rank, thank you so much for joining us here on the Matt Townsend Show. We really appreciate your insight and just such a fascinating topic about the American dream. His name is Dr. Mark Rank, and he is a professor of social welfare at Washington University in St. Louis. And check out his book. He's the co-author of Chasing the American Dream, Understanding What Shapes Our Fortunes. And uh, he's just provided us with some really good questions to chew on and uh, just some things to consider as we chase after that American dream ourselves and uh, hopefully for our children too. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue to have some fun. It is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're celebrating Valentine's Day here on the program, and we just spoke with Dr. Mark Rank, who talked to us about the American dream. And I would think that many, for many people, the American dream somewhere in there would involve marriage. Wouldn't you say, Terry? Maybe. I don't know. If you look at the marriage <laughs> statistics nowadays, it, it might be finding that special someone might be the way we have to uh, qualify it nowadays. Okay. So you, I understand you've got a story you want to share with us about maybe somebody who found the special someone, but things didn't go according to plan. Yeah. So our, this is out of uh, the New York Post. A ritzy Manhattan wedding rehearsal dinner descended into a brawl after the groom's parents objected to a toast on the eve of the couple's $325,000 wedding oh. at a hotel there in New York, according to a lawsuit between the warring would-be in-laws. Now it's gone to lawsuits. At some point during the chaos, the, seeing, the seething bride gave her betrothed an ultimatum. Make a choice, me or your mother. Ooh. According to <laughs> oh, that's Appar- tough. Apparently, he chose his mom because the ceremony was canceled. He sued his bride, and the father of the bride sued the would-be in-laws. The bride's brother said the ultimatum never happened. So that's fake news, apparently. Oh. On October this is, fake news. <laughs> this is October 28th. We're hearing about it now because it's gone to court. The night before the uh, the wedding of Bradley Moss to his wife, Amy Bruzza, B-Z-U-R-A, I don't know, it's kind of a weird name, were to tie the knot, Bradley's parents hosted a meal at a local restaurant. The parents took offense to the bride's brother, who was about to make a heartfelt toast, and a video tribute says the Manhattan federal lawsuit that was filed. The uh, one of the fathers inexplicably and angrily declared that Adam was not allowed to speak at the dinner, <laughs> and then growled, "Do you know what I can do to you?" The suit claims. Whoa! I'm not, I'm not sure if that's physically, legally. I think he was four foot ten, and he could said have been. That. Yeah. He threatened to kick Adam out, and the events began to escalate. Wendy Moss, sixty, began arguing with Adam and the groom's brother. And so, so family were fighting family, and someone got slugged, as it says here, in the kisser. So there was a fisticuffs. <laughs> well, was this, did this take place in the 40s or something? No. The I'm gr- going to knock you in the kisser. This was last October. This okay. is right before Halloween. The groom's father then tra- charged Adam while another one struggled to hold uh, – the other father held back. The, the, so the two fathers are fighting. They're trying to get to this guy that was trying to give the toast. No word on what the toast was, but the evening ended in shouting and tears, the groom's mom phoning guests on the spot to tell them that the big event was off. You know, it's always the brother. It's always that darn brother, brother that gets yeah. up to make the toast and is like, hey – Remember that time we went to Costa Rica and uh, we had those two crazy nights? You remember, right? Totally. Yeah. Oof. Well, that's too bad. And that's a tough choice because you've got your mother 
with whom you've lived your entire life, who's taken care of you, fed you, given you shelter, and then the woman that you've known for maybe a year who's going to make you go to work. And you don't get all those things for free anymore. Anyway, that's probably not the best way to look at this. We wish them well, and we hope that they can patch things up, because it is, after all, Valentine's Day, and it's the day of love, a day when we should forgive and just focus on each other's needs. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue to have some more Valentine's Day fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're celebrating Valentine's Day here on the program, and we just spoke with Dr. Mark Rank, who talked to us about the American dream. And I would think that many, for many people, the American dream somewhere in there would involve marriage. Wouldn't you say, Terry? Maybe. I don't know. If you look at the marriage <laughs> statistics nowadays, it, it might be finding that special someone might be the way we have to uh, qualify it nowadays. Okay. So you, I understand you've got a story you want to share with us about maybe somebody who found the special someone, but things didn't go according to plan. Yeah. So our, this is out of uh, the New York Post. A ritzy Manhattan wedding rehearsal dinner descended into a brawl after the groom's parents objected to a toast on the eve of the couple's $325,000 wedding. At a hotel there in New York, according to a lawsuit between the warring would-be in-laws. Now it's gone to lawsuits. At some point during the chaos, the the seething bride gave her betrothed an ultimatum. Make a choice, me or your mother. Ooh. That's tough. Apparently, he chose his mom because the ceremony was canceled. He sued his bride, and the father of the bride sued the would-be in-laws. The bride's brother said the ultimatum never happened. So that's fake news, apparently. Oh. On October this is, fake news. <laughs> this is October 28th. We're hearing about it now because it's gone to court. The night before the uh, the wedding of Bradley Moss to his wife, Amy Bruzza, B-Z-U-R-A, I don't know, it's kind of a weird name, were to tie the knot, Bradley's parents hosted a meal at a local restaurant. The parents took offense to the bride's brother, who was about to make a heartfelt toast, and a video tribute says the Manhattan federal lawsuit that was filed. The uh, one of the fathers inexplicably and angrily declared that Adam was not allowed to speak at the dinner, <laughs> and then growled, "Do you know what I can do to you?" The suit claims. Whoa! I'm not, I'm not sure if that's physically, legally. I think he was four foot ten, and he could have been. That, yeah. He threatened to kick Adam out, and the events began to escalate. Wendy Moss, sixty, began arguing with Adam and the groom's brother. And so, so family were fighting family, and someone got slugged, as it says here, in the kisser. So there was a fisticuffs. <laughs> well, was this, did this take place in the 40s or something? No. The I'm gr- going to knock you in the kisser. This was last October. This okay. is right before Halloween. The groom's father then tra- charged Adam while another one struggled to hold uh, – the other father held back. The, the So the two fathers are fighting. They're trying to get to this guy that was trying to give the toast. No word on what the toast was, but the evening ended in shouting and tears, the groom's mom phoning guests on the spot to tell them that the big event was off. You know, it's always the brother. It's always that darn brother, brother that gets yeah. up to make the toast and is like, hey – Remember that time we went to Costa Rica and uh, we had those two crazy nights? You remember, right? T- totally. Yeah. Oof. Well, that's too bad. And that's a tough choice because you've got your mother with whom you've lived your entire life, who's taken care of you, fed you, 
given you shelter, and then the woman that you've known for maybe a year who's going to make you go to work. And you don't get all those things for free anymore. Anyway, that's probably not the best way to look at this. We wish them well, and we hope that they can patch things up, because it is, after all, Valentine's Day, and it's the day of love, a day when we should forgive and just focus on each other's needs. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue to have some more Valentine's Day fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. BYU Radio. Hold on to your hats. You never know who's going to show up to play live on Highway 89. Weeknights at 10 Eastern, here on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Talk about good. KBYU FM, HD2, Provo. Should be the BBC News. The half-brother of the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is believed to have died in Malaysia. Some reports suggest that Kim Jong-nam was poisoned, as Celia Hatton reports. A British source with close ties to the Kim family confirms to the BBC poison was involved in the death of Kim Jong-nam. He was the eldest son of the late North Korean leader Kim Jong-il. The younger Mr. Kim went into exile after falling out of favour with his father. Kim Jong-nam's body is now undergoing a post-mortem examination in Malaysia. One South Korean media outlet said he'd been killed by two women using poisoned needles, though that has not been confirmed. In recent years, Kim Jong-nam is believed to have spent much of his time living in China and Malaysia. The chairman of the Japanese electronics conglomerate, Toshiba, has resigned, following the news that the company suffered a net loss this year of $3.4 billion. Shigenori Shiga announced he was stepping down shortly after the company delayed an announcement of its financial results. It had been widely expected to write off billions of dollars due to its problematic nuclear energy business. The European Parliament's Brexit negotiator has called for profound reform of the European Union, saying it always delivers too little too late. Addressing the European Parliament, Giva Hofstadt blamed a rising tide of anti-EU feeling across Europe. Kevin Connolly reports. Giva Hofstadt is in no doubt that the people of the European Union are losing faith in its ability to solve major problems like the migration crisis. He sums up in three words the factors he says are changing the political atmosphere. Brexit, Trump and Putin. Mr Verhofstadt's prescription for making the EU a more credible vehicle for providing answers is to give its institutions more powers at the expense of individual member states. Russia has rejected accusations that it's behind media and internet attacks on the centrist French presidential candidate Emmanuel Macron. A Kremlin spokesman said Russia had no intention of interfering in the internal affairs of other countries. He described the accusations as part of a hysterical anti-Putin campaign. The state-controlled broadcaster Russia Today also denied spreading false information about Mr Macron. The United Nations says government soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo are thought to have killed at least 100 people in clashes with a local militia group in the last few days. The UN said the troops fired indiscriminately with machine guns at members of the Kamwina and Sapu group, who are loyal to a local chief killed by soldiers in August. A UN spokeswoman, Liz Throssell, expressed concern. Some 39 women are reported to have been caught in the fire and are among the dead. 
We are deeply concerned at the reported high number of deaths, which, if confirmed, would suggest excessive and disproportionate use of force by the soldiers. World news from the BBC. Police in Thailand say they've uncovered a new method used by drug traffickers to smuggle cocaine, mixing the drug into body lotion. An Ecuadorian woman was arrested at Bangkok Airport on Monday. A senior police officer told the BBC that anti-drug officers were suspicious about the large amount of body lotion, six bottles, the woman was carrying with her. The French carmaker PSA, which owns Peugeot and Citroën, says it's in talks about closer links with Opel, the European operation of General Motors, the US giant. The French group said that acquiring Opel is one of the possibilities under consideration. Our economics correspondent Andrew Walker reports. A spokesman for the French group says it's looking to increase profitability and operating efficiency by building on its existing links with General Motors. They already share production of a limited range of vehicles. One option would be an acquisition of Opel, which makes Vauxhall-badged cars for the British market, by Peugeot Citroën, possibly with GM retaining a stake in the enlarged company. Opel, which has headquarters in Germany and operations in a number of other European countries, has been losing money for several years. An Iranian official has said that several young women disguised as men have been stopped as they try to enter a stadium in defiance of a ban on women attending football matches. The official said security guards stopped eight women as they tried to get into a football stadium in Tehran on Sunday to watch a match. Women have been banned from going to football games in Iran since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Vogue Paris has become the first issue of the international fashion magazine to have a transgender model as its cover star. The March edition is fronted by the Brazilian model Valentina Sampaio, a trans woman who's previously appeared on the cover of El Brasil. The editor-in-chief of Vogue Paris, Emmanuel Alt, said Sampaio was the absolute equal of other iconic women in fashion. BBC News. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning, everyone. It is Valentine's Day here on the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, I'm Pretty much everywhere else. Okay, good. Just so we got that straight. (laughs) Yes, we don't uh, exist in our own little world, although sometimes we. Yeah. Sometimes we feel like we're in our own little world. Alternative facts. Whether for good or for bad. But happy Valentine's Day. Go and love your significant other more than yourself. That was yesterday. You had your chance yesterday. Go Go take her some flowers or him, some chocolates. And uh, we talked about this early. I don't know if I think it was last week. We talked about the jerky roses for men. Yes, They're is very... that something? Is that uh, a key to your heart right there? No, just go get me a bag of beef jerky. Because <laughs> they charge you more for the roses, and you just get That's a bag. That's true. There's, l- there's less jerky involved. Yeah. Yes, women need to remember this fact that men are very simple folk. Very. We don't need all that fancy schmancy stuff. Uh, yeah, just a bag of Muddy Buddies would probably do it for me. There you go. How about you, Colin? We should we should just try to see how many times we can, like, skim out of every show you've said Muddy Buddies. I think I have a problem. <laughs> 
Anyway, we're going to continue the Valentine's Day fun throughout the program. And in fact, later on in this hour, Caitlin Thomas, our wonderful producer, is going to be stopping by to talk to us about some of the worst Valentine's Day gifts. Have either of you ever had just a horrible Valentine's Day gift that you've either received or you've given? No. I met this girl. um, (laughs) It was like two days before Valentine's Day. Barely knew her. And she came to my apartment on Valentine's Day two days later and gave me little heart-shaped cookies that she like had made. I was Mm. really confused because I barely knew her. We went on one date. And uh, if I recall correctly, you kissed this girl. So he wants he wants to bring attention to that, but he didn't want to bring that much attention to it. See, men are simple folk. <laughs> we don't need the cookies, just a bag of jerky and muddy buddies. Anyway, Caitlin Thomas will be here later to talk more about that fun topic. But uh, first, before we get to that, let's talk to Terry South, who's got the news from around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? President Trump's embattled national security advisor resigned Monday evening and uh, amid a uh, mounting questions over his conversation with a Russian diplomat. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn reportedly told Vice President Pence in calls before Trump's inauguration, Flint did not discuss sanctions with Russian ambassadors. When uh, wiretaps found that the general had done just that. In his letter... Uh, I, one, one finding it interesting that uh, he probably didn't think that, that people were listening to the Russian ambassador's telephone calls. Hmm. And he made a phone call. So someone was listening to a phone call, and right. they have now the transcripts. Because uh, he was a private citizen at the time. It was rumored that he was going to take this national security post. And then he made a phone call to the Russian ambassador. Now they have the transcripts of all this because the NSA listens to everybody. Isn't that kind of the general rule of thumb that... You, you know, everything is listened to these days. Yes. Hmm. So they produce these and they're like, look, he, he did everything he said he didn't do. In his letter of resignation, Flynn said that, now this was after, no wait, Flynn said that he had sincerely apologized to the president and the vice president and they had accepted my apology. Um, he then went on to gush about how great the how great the presidency has been over the last several weeks and Trump's changed the world. There was like a huge gush at the end. Of admiration after he apologized for, you know, causing the embarrassment that he has over the last few weeks. In a statement, the White House said Trump has named Keith Kellogg as acting national security advisor. No acting. word on if he's involved with serial at all. So don't okay. ask. So you, you acting is about to say Meaning that. they're still looking for a permanent there one. There are three candidates. They are going to vet them. Extreme vetting. (laughs) Extreme. Extreme Extreme-er, because apparently I don't know if this happened with Michael Flynn and see if there's any phone calls that have happened with these individuals. Um, David uh, uh, Shuklin? Shuklin. David Shuklin. There he goes. Probably not saying that right. Unanimously confirmed by the Senate on Monday night to become the next Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Uh, He has been the VA Undersecretary for Health uh, since July of 2015 and was President Trump's only holdover from the Obama administration. He promised during his confirmation hearing that he will help lead a major reform and transformation of the VA, which, of course, has a lot of problems, a lot of delays in care to veterans, and they want to clean that up, obviously. That's probably a good non-controversial choice to have a holdover from Obama's administration. Veteran affairs. Universal. Just go fix this problem. Right. Yeah. It's embarrassing for everybody because we're not taking care of our veterans. Yeah. So take care of them. Yep. And uh, four Republican senators are reportedly having serious doubts about Andy Putzer, President Trump's pick for labor secretary. He's the guy that is the... 
uh, CEO of Hardee's and uh, Carl's Jr. Oh. CNN reported Monday oh, that, that a Republican from Alaska, Maine, South Carolina, and Georgia have informed the GOP leadership that they are withholding support for the confirmation of, uh, of Pudser with uh, Republicans holding a narrow 52-48 margin in the Senate. That could spell serious problems for his confirmation. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell may have to, uh, as it says here, face the unwelcome task of advising the White House to pull the nomination instead of facing an embarrassing Senate floor defeat. Putzer's Senate confirmation hearing is slated for Thursday. He has said things... Uh, about his employees at the fast food places are these are some of the worst people you could find for a job and that's why you hire these people because they're looking for that type of job see i was just going to say i probably have more reservations about going to carl's jr than i would about uh nominating putzer right until you read some (laughs) of the things that they've brought up as evidence against him republicans like him because he holds some of the similar views that they have when it comes to labor like uh hourly wage and those sorts of mm-hmm. things. He actually wants to lower the hourly wage. He thinks people that make hourly wages, they're, it's too much. Minimum wage is too high right now. Interesting, because in Utah, they're talking about raising it, yeah. but making it more of an incremental raise, as I understand. Sure. But you know that Western bacon cheeseburger sure is good. Though. There you go. A little advertisement yeah. on the way out. <laughs> um, and finally, a box of fruity candy is leaving one theater goer more than a little sour. Of nice. course, this is from TMZ, so hold on to your hat. A woman in California is suing the makers of Mike and Ike candies for allegedly tricking her into buying a nearly half-empty box of sweets. Ooh. The lawsuit filed against the Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania-based Just Born Quality. That's the name of the company that makes the uh, candy. Uh, they also make Peeps, by the way. Didn't know if you knew that. Really? The woman, the Another woman, candy I don't eat. The woman claimed she paid $4 for a box of, box of Mike and Ike's at a movie theater in California, but estimates estimates that it was filled with 46% of air. She also argues that since the candy is kept behind glass at the, at the concession stand, she was not able to inspect or shake the box before purchasing. <laughs> the report goes Real on. Concerns. The woman conducted her own experiments with hot tamales. And found that similar problem, i.e. the box was only half full. She notes, however, that Boston Baked Beans, a peanut candy made from uh, this other company, does a much better job of filling its boxes. Well, people are – I think people want hot tamales more than they want Boston Baked Beans. Right. True. And a statement from the makers of Mike and Ike mm-hmm. says, these are baseless allegations and we intend to vigorously defend ourselves in court. So this is. Oh, happen. I would never want to go up against Mike and or Ike right. in court or their friend Hot Tamale. Yes. Um, so <laughs> the other thing is maybe she hasn't purchased uh, products before. I mean, you buy a bag of chips. Exactly. There's a lot of air in the bag of chips. This is, this is common. Yeah, and then and man, they, they, they claim it's because of settling, and no, it's not because. Of maybe settling. you think because of the rebranding with Mike and Ike's, they got to pay for it somehow, so they're cutting back. Could be. Who and knows? then if you live in the mountains, there's like fifty percent more air. That gets into that bag. They don't judge altitude. You're correct. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right, though. That's It's not unique to candy bars. No. Or candy in general. It's just kind it's of most, most products seem to be not all the way full. And it's yeah. because of, you know, uh, uh, what they say, the product shifts during shipping. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like a big excuse, which they, it is. They put but, the air in the bag so yeah. that the chips don't get crushed. or They but, don't want to fill it with as much product as you want. That's what they're doing. She yeah. bought it at the movie theater, though? Yes. Okay. Which is her own fault because you don't buy things at the movie theater. That same box yeah. is a dollar at the grocery store. Although, yeah. try sneaking in a box of Mike and Ike's into the movie theaters and not 
hear all the rattling right. as you're shuffling well, in there. Try not to do jumping jacks on the way in. You're just, probably okay. Just sneaking so, a bag of Muddy Buddies. I took a bunch yes. of candy with me to the movie on Saturday. We once took. They That's used to make. You're arrested, uh, Terry. <laughs> if you go to the World Market or like a Marshalls. They have those yard-long candy tubes. Oh, right, yeah. They used to have licorice uh, vines that were all one piece, and there were probably a dozen yard-long licorice pieces. Mm. And so and, you would wrap uh, them around your waist under your shirt. And we should have done that. That's a good idea. No, we took the tube. We shoved it down my wife's pant leg, and she kind of just, like, <laughs> limped into the movie theater. Right, because they're not going to call out someone with some sort of ailment. That would yeah. be insensitive. Right. And the four people that the licorice rope stretched across, we all enjoyed that well, thoroughly. There you go. <sighs> that's that's incredible. Yeah. It reminds me of this scene in uh, Heavyweights where they're all, like, unpacking all of their candy off of their people, of their person. <laughs> you just named a hidden hidden gem right there, Heavyweights. I was say, BYU Radio does not endorse such behavior, so just yes. get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pay for your candy. <laughs> pay $4 um, for it. I'm not going to tell you where to pay for that candy, but pay for your candy. <laughs> so this woman's going to sue. We'll follow. We'll keep updated uh, on Please the case. Please do. We'll see where that goes. I have a... I have an idea where it's going to go. Wow. So you talked about candy. I want to talk about Taco Bell. And Terry is is so good enough to always keep us up to date on new products that are coming into Taco Bell. And uh, here's one that was literally running to Taco Bell. Last week, a cow's nearly two-hour taste of freedom ended at none other than a busy Taco Bell on South Main Street in Weatherford, Texas. A cow escaped the Hamilton Meats butcher shop and led police officers and animal control workers on a lengthy chase throughout the city, Star-Telegram reported. The cow was wrangled by two civilians on horseback in front of the fast food chain after ramming into a police car and was returned to the butcher. He ran pretty good for the amount of time he was out, said Sergeant Jason Hayes of the Weatherford Police Department, but he got caught like the rest of them. (laughs) They always get caught. That is a warning to all you cows out there. In the end, they're going to get you. And I bet that cow is going to be right back at that Taco Bell real soon. Oh, yeah. In a different form, of course. (laughs) And he is going to taste delicious. I apologize to any animal rights activists that might be listening to the show at this point. Um, speaking of police and chases, well, this isn't really a chase, chase, but it involves the police. An Australian football fan learned the hard way that it doesn't pay to be too familiar with a police officer. According to a federal court calling a policeman Oida... An Australian, no, I'm sorry, an Austrian or Bavarian dialect word, which roughly translates as dude or man, is a punishable offense. Have you ever called a police officer dude? Was that it? Have you ever? Oh, <laughs> but I'm not a police officer. I've so, never called a police officer dude. Probably not a good I'm idea. Just always scared. The incident occurred at a football stadium in Pashing in Upper Austria. The fan in question had hung a banner in front of the stadium and a police officer told him to take it down. The fan replied, let it go, dude. Although that would not be an Austrian accident. It would be more like, uh, let it go, dude. (laughs) How was that? That Any better? That was fantastic. The officer filed a report saying that the man had spoken to him disrespectfully and he was ordered to pay a fine of $100 by the local district authority. $100. It's a lot. 
The fan contested the fine and took the case to the Regional Court of Appeal, arguing that oida is a normal and acceptable slang word used by young people. Well, if young people are saying it, then it must be okay, right? Gotta be. The court looked into the origins of the word oida, and I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, and found that it comes from the Viennese uh, word hawara, meaning friend or crony. It ruled that the word is not appropriate to use when speaking to a police officer as the police are not friends or cronies of the general public. See, now that right there, I don't know if I agree with that last part because it seems like today we are doing all that we can to have better relationships with our police officers. Now, I'm not saying that we go out to bars with them or we, you know, go to sporting events with them as a, a personal friend or anything, but or call them dude. It seems like we should be friends with police officers and be on good terms with them. But maybe not appropriate to start calling them dude or man because there is still a level of authority there and a, an amount of respect that we ought to pay to these brave men and women. So uh, share the love with your fellow, with your police officers today because it is Valentine's Day. Maybe just don't call them dude. Anyway, just a little bit of advice as we go to break here on the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the invisible influence and what that means. We'll be speaking with Jonah Berger, who uh, is a best-selling author, the author of Invisible Influence. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's uh, in Las Vegas right now. He'll... Join us later on this week. If you're like most people, you think that your choices and behaviors are driven by your individual personal tastes and opinions. You wear a certain jacket because you like the way it looked. You picked a particular career because you found it interesting. The notion that our choices are driven by our own personal thoughts and opinions is patently obvious, right? Well, here to argue the profound impact that others have on us is Jonah Berger, author of Invisible Influence. He's also a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the recent New York Times and Wall Street uh, Journal bestseller, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. And we're grateful to have him here on the Matt Townsend Show. Jonah, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, your, your interest in social influence, it started with you. This is so interesting. It started with you riding your bike in California. Can you talk to us more about that story? Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it starts actually in a slightly different place. I was telling a friend of mine I was doing research on social influence, uh, and he's a, a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and was lamenting uh, the power of influence on his colleagues. He said, God, all D.C. lawyers are the same. Uh, you know, the first thing they do when they make partners, they go out and they buy a new BMW. And I said, oh, that, that's interesting, you know, but aren't you a D.C. lawyer and don't you actually drive a BMW? And he said, oh, yeah, but they all drive gray ones and I drive a blue one. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> what we thought was so interesting about that story is even when we behave the same as others or similar to others, we think we're really different. Uh, and so we actually did a study on this. So I, I biked around Palo Alto, California, uh, putting uh, little surveys on the windshield wipers of cars. 
uh, actually BMW drivers' uh, cars. Uh, and on the first side of the survey, it asked them what influenced their car purchase to rate a variety of factors like price and, and gas mileage and also social influence, how much they bought their car to fit in with their peers or look good to others. On the back side, it asked them to write about a friend who owned a BMW. They didn't know what the survey was about. Just write about someone else you know who, who owns a BMW and answer the same questions uh, about them, how much their car purchase was influenced by price and gas mileage and a host of other factors. It turned out for uh, normal things like gas and, uh, and price and those sorts of things, there wasn't any difference between ourselves and others. We thought we were both somewhat influenced by those factors. And sure enough, people did see social influence. When it came to thinking about a peer's car purchase, they said their peers were hugely influenced by what others were doing, by what the media suggested, by a desire to fit in. But when it came to themselves, them buying a BMW, even though it was the same car, they thought they weren't susceptible to social influence at all. When it came to their purchase, they said it was all about the gas and color and how it drove and nothing about influence at all. And so we do see influence. When we look around, we see others being susceptible to influence, but we never see it in ourselves. That's so interesting. Have you ever seen the movie Meet the Parents? I have, yeah, there's a that, long time ago. There's that scene where Ben Stiller comes to meet Robert De Niro, and he pulls up in a, a gray rental car. I think it was a cream rental car. And uh, Robert De Niro said, oh, cream car, huh? Did you choose that? Oh, no, they just gave it to me. Interesting. They say that geniuses pick cream, but you didn't pick it. <laughs> just remind <laughs> me of that, that scene. Interesting. So how many people are actually strongly influenced by others? What, what have you found in your research? You know, uh, it's not how many people, it's everyone. In fact, wow. research shows that 99.9% of all our choices, decisions, and actions are shaped in some way by, uh, by others around us. Wow. And sure enough, sometimes it's our family and our friends. Uh, you know, one person uh, recently told me, I think it's a great quote, that we're the, we're the sum of our five closest friends. Our, our close others have a big impact on what we do. But same with the other people around us who we might not expect. Uh, the person who sits across from us on the bus. Uh, the person who sits uh, next to us uh, at the office. These others that surround us have a subtle and often surprising impact on almost everything we do, uh, you know, from the simple decisions we make, like what breakfast cereal to buy, to the complicated ones like what car to drive or which house to purchase. We think that those decisions are made by us, our preferences, our likes, and our dislikes. And sure enough, those things have a little bit of an impact, but they're subtly shaped by others around us, often without our awareness. Now, in your opinion, and you know, maybe in your research too, have you found that we are more inclined to follow the advice of somebody we don't know as well or somebody that's closer to us? Well, you know, we're more likely to trust someone the better we know them, right? So if you and I are old friends and you recommend something, I'm much more likely to take your recommendation than someone I don't know uh, necessarily. But similarity matters as well, right? So you and I may be great friends, but if you like spicy food and I hate spicy food, the fact you like a restaurant may not be enough for me to go check it out, right? I'm not only looking for whether you think it's good or not. I'm looking for whether your tastes and preferences match mine. And so people, when they take recommendations, are often doing a little bit of, of calculus, if you will. They're thinking about how much do I trust this person, how much are their preferences like mine, and are the fact that they like something or enjoy something, might that mean I'm going to like it or enjoy it as well? That's so interesting. And yeah, it, it really does depend on the relationship and the, the preferences that you have. One of the best uh, decisions we made was to follow the advice of a bus driver who told us, you should try out this pizza place, and it soon became our favorite pizza place. But yeah, I'm sure it doesn't always happen that way. Um, now, what do you say to people who are who pride themselves on 
on having maintaining their individuality and not being influenced by others. But it, it sounds like even those people are subtly being influenced. What, what would you say to those people who are worried about being influenced? It's funny. In American culture, influence is almost like a dirty word, it's almost like a hmm. four-letter word. If, if I found nothing else from writing this book and doing the research that, that made it up is that when we hear influence, we say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not influenced because we think influence is a bad thing. We think being influenced by others is a bad thing. Why would we want to be influenced? We want to make our own decisions. We want to be independent. Uh, we all, you know, have heard that phrase when you're a kid, you know, if Timmy jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? Or right. know, people who are followers, they're all lemmings, they do the same thing. Yet influence is often a good thing. That, that pizza place example you just provided, you know, think about if we could never make a decision uh, with consulting others. We had to only rely uh, on our own uh, information. You'd have to go around and try every restaurant before you figured out what, what was good. You wouldn't be able to try an airline yourself You'd say, God, you know, how do I know if it's good or not? There'd be no information that you could glean from others. Life would be a lot tougher and a lot more complicated. And so we often use others as a signal of information, a shortcut to help us make faster and, and better decisions. If we're in a foreign city, for example, we don't know where to go out to eat. Well, we, we look for a restaurant that's full. Why? Well, we assume if it's full, it must be good. We use right. this as a signal of information. And so influence by itself is neither good or bad. There are certainly cases where we're influenced to do bad things. We follow others who make worse choices uh, in groups because we merely go along. Yet in other cases, it leads us to make better decisions. And so it's really only by understanding influence, by identifying it and understanding how it works, can we take advantage of its power? Can we take advantage of its upsides and avoid its downsides? That's another good example of, of how to find a good restaurant. One of our other favorite restaurants we discovered because we were walking around and said, hey, let's go try that one. That's going to line out the door. And uh, sure enough, it was good. Uh, so getting <laughs> getting to that, digging deeper into that, um, obviously you mentioned that we are at times subtly influenced, much more so than other uh, other times. How do we identify the the point of origin or the, the person who is influencing us or or a group of people? How do we identify that person or those people? You know, I think it's about paying attention to our choices and noticing when our choices are being shifted in a way that we might not prefer. Uh, imagine you're out to dinner, for example, with a group of friends, uh, and uh, you have in mind what you're going to order. You've picked the mahi-mahi. It looks delicious off the menu. You can't wait to order it. Well, the waiter actually doesn't take your order first. They take one of your friends, and then they take another one of your friends. And by the time it gets to you, someone else has ordered the mahi-mahi. Now, the chef's not out. There are multiple mahi-mahi. Everybody can have the mahi-mahi. Yet the mere fact that someone else at your table ordered it, the fact that someone you know ordered it, actually can make you less likely to order it. And not only are you less likely to order it, but by switching your order, you end up being less happy as a result. It turns out that most people end up switching their choice, they end up picking something else, and they end up being less satisfied with what they chose, even though they don't necessarily realize it. And so those are the type of situations where, hold on, influence isn't just uh, attracting. Uh, it's like a magnet. It can also repel. It can lead us to do the opposite uh, of something else uh, and not always be happy with it. And so really, in, in the first place, we need to pay more attention to our choices and say, well, hold on. Are others leading us in the right direction or might they leading us astray? That is so true. <laughs> I just had this huge smile on my face as you were using that example. It seems like every time I'm out to dinner with my wife, there's this mentality of, oh, we can't order the same thing. You order this, and I'll order this, and we can split it, and we can try a little bit of everything. It's kind of like with 
with how a lot of women won't wear the same outfit as another woman, you know. Interesting. Uh, Let's do this. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue this discussion of the invisible influence. We're speaking with Jonah Berger, who has uh, so graciously come on to our show. And uh, we've got him for about another 10 minutes. So we'll get back to this topic here uh, in just a couple minutes. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping helping you live more influenced and informed lives when we return. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's in Las Vegas still. And uh, we've been speaking with Jonah Berger, who is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and also an author. His latest book is Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. Dr. Berger has spent over 15 years studying how social influence works and how it drives products and ideas to catch on. He's published dozens of articles in top-tier academic journals, consulted for a variety of Fortune 500 companies and popular outlets like The New York Times and Harvard Business Review. And uh, we are so great, uh, grateful to have you here on the program. Thanks for joining us, Jonah. Thanks for having me. So, uh, I want to. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your research involving brands. Yeah, you know, brands are a powerful tool, uh, not only to make us happy, uh, but also to signal or communicate our, our identities. Uh, we did a study, for example, at Stanford University a number of years ago, uh, that it turns out that people care a lot about what brands say about them, but that depends on who else is using that brand. Uh, at the time, uh, yellow Livestrong wristbands had just come out, those yellow wristbands that people are wearing. Uh, and so we sold them to students on campus. Uh, and then a week later, we sold them to the geeks on campus, uh, sort of the students from the academic focus dorm. And what we found is once the geeks started wearing the wristbands, everybody else stopped. Interesting. Huh. So They liked the wristbands just fine. They didn't want to communicate that identity by wearing that brand. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So... This research that you've conducted, how how can businesses use this research to their advantage? You know, I was working recently with an organization that wanted to get uh, conservatives to adopt clean energy. Uh, so wind power, solar power, and, and the like. It turns out that conservatives should love uh, clean energy. It reduces our reliance on big government, something conservatives should like. Uh, it reduces our reliance on foreign oil, something conservatives should like. Um, and yet most conservatives uh, don't support clean energy. And, and when uh, we did some research, we found out there was a subtle reason why. Uh, when you ask conservatives why they don't support clean energy, you tended to get back a particular response, which is they said, well, Al Gore supports clean energy. Uh, and if Al Gore supports something, it's probably not for me because it wasn't just about the functional reasons uh, of using clean energy or not. It was about what it said or communicated about them. And so the signal sent by buying something or using something is really important. What does it say about us to wear a certain brand, to uh, adopt a certain hairstyle or a certain ideology? Uh, and how can we shift the meaning to help people engage in good behaviors? 
We want people to eat healthy, for example. How can we associate that with desirable identities uh, to make people want to do it? Or if, if they're bad behaviors we want people to avoid, well, it's not just telling them it's bad for them. It's actually about associating them with negative identities that they don't want to hold. We did another study where we got students to eat healthier, for example, by associating junk food with undesirable identities, identities they wanted to avoid. And to avoid those identities, they avoided eating junk food as well. That's so interesting. I was going to ask you, you know, more in in line with these negative things that we do that we don't want others to adopt. And I think of, you know, let's just say a a father who smokes or drinks and doesn't want his children to do to make the same choices that he's making. How do in, in those circumstances, how can people not be influenced by those things that are so prevalent in their lives, whether or not it's a choice of theirs? Yeah, you know, we did a study that looked at exactly this. We looked at drinking in in college, for example. You know, unfortunately, uh, binge drinking in college is a big problem. Uh, Many students don't want to drink, but they think others are drinking, so so they end up doing something similar. And and most of the appeals focus on information. They say, you know, don't drink. Drinking is bad for your health. Uh, You shouldn't do it. Here are the reasons why uh, you shouldn't do it. But it turns out that's not always enough, right? Because if people aren't doing something for information, if they're doing it because of identity, then and the mere fact that you tell them it's bad for them is it isn't going to change their behavior. You need to change or shift the identity associated with that behavior. And that's exactly what we did in the study, right? We changed the identity that they associated with this particular behavior. Rather than associating it with a desired identity, we associated it with an undesired identity, one they wouldn't want to hold. And that encouraged them to, to avoid it. And so same thing, I think, when we're thinking about our own families, for example. You know, it's not enough to say drinking is bad or smoking is bad. We need to think about the identity it communicates. What does it say about someone to to drink or smoke? And how can we get them to avoid doing it by signaling desired identities and avoid signaling undesired ones? Interesting. You you mentioned earlier uh, in the interview that uh, influence is is kind of a buzzword or a four-letter word. And, you know, conforming is is something that's not always valued in our culture. You know, you think of movements like the hipster movement, which is all about non-conformity. And, uh, you know, now that it's something that's been commercialized, is it possible to escape conformity? <laughs> you know, influence isn't a, isn't a bad thing. Um, uh, and we, we think conformity is, uh, is bad. And we think, oh, some people don't conform. Certain people are different. There, there's a great South Park episode that played on this. So there were, uh, you know, one of the kids was thinking about becoming a goth. And we think about goths and sort of very outsiders and, you know, dressing differently and having black nail polish and, uh, you know, black trench coats. And, um, you know, sure enough, he was hanging out with the other goths and they said, oh, do you want some coffee? And he said, no, thanks. I don't drink coffee. And one of the kids says, oh, you can't be a goth if you don't drink coffee. Um, uh, and, you know, what's funny about that is, is we think about certain identities as being different, but really they conform to their own set of rules or their own set of norms. Um, you know, certainly they're being different from the mainstream in some ways, but they're also being very similar uh, to one another. And so that, I think, is the key question. It's not about avoiding influence. It's about choosing influence, choosing the others we surround ourselves with really carefully. So we take advantage of the upsides of influence and we avoid the downsides. Think really carefully, for example, who our kids are becoming friends with. Those peers are going to have a big impact on on their behavior. You can use peers, though, to motivate others and get them to do good things. Uh, Some very nice research shows that we can get uh, people to work harder at the office, for example, by comparing them to others that are just slightly ahead of them. 
Comparisons to others that are doing slightly just a little bit better motivate us to take action, motivate us to work hard. And so, again, influence by itself is neither good or bad. It's a tool we can use to help us live happier and healthier lives. And uh, Jonah, I, I know you need to go here in a minute or two, but uh, just in closing, what's one the one thing that we should take away from this as far as the way that we're influenced and, and should we be careful or how should we be aware of the influences in our lives? Certainly. You know, the main reason I wrote the book was to help people, first of all, identify those influences. We can't take advantage of the upsides and avoid the downsides if we don't see it happening in the first place. Influence is often invisible. That's why I titled the book Invisible Influence. And so the goal of writing this book was to really help people identify those influences that are often invisible uh, in our lives. Right? We can use it to motivate us to, to live happier and healthier and make better choices. But influence can also lead us astray. And so it's really first about identifying its power and then using it, uh, using it to help us. Um, uh, in fact, on my website, for example, I put up a bunch of free resources to help people become more influential. We can help people make better choices. We can motivate others. We can be more persuasive and live good ideas and messages to catch on. And so influence is a powerful tool. If we understand how to use it, we can live happier and healthier lives. And Jonah, I just want to give you a quick opportunity to do a plug for your website. Can we get that from you? Sure, yes. Uh, it's Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R dot com. Uh, there's a resources tab. Uh, your listeners can download a bunch of free resources to be more influential, to make better group decisions, and to motivate uh, themselves and others. Again, influence is great. It surrounds us, and if we understand it, we can live better lives. Well, Dr. Berger, we appreciate you coming on the Matt Townsend, the Matt Townsend Show uh, and informing us more about the influences in our lives So uh, make sure to go check out his website, jonahberger.com, as well as his new book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, as well as his New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. His name is Jonah Berger, and we're so grateful that he joined us here on the program. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our Valentine's Day celebration by talking about some of the worst Valentine's Day gifts that we've received or that you could give. (laughs) That will be with Caitlin Thomas when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. As you know, we're celebrating Valentine's Day here on the program. And uh, so is Matt Townsend, even though he's not here. He's in Vegas with his lovely wife. And tomorrow they're celebrating their anniversary. If Matt were here, he would do a faux. So wait, Matt got married on February 15th. I know, right? Maybe it was a Sunday. Maybe Valentine's Day was a Sunday and he couldn't do it. That sounds like something Matt would do. I don't know. If Matt were here, he would do his faux, his faux choke-up moment. <laughs> 25 years <laughs> of marital bliss. <laughs> well, I did go to his uh, date night on Saturday night. My parents were there, too. They were. They were. I didn't see them because there were 1,200 other people. people. Yeah. It was it was quite a success, and I was in shock of how he could stand up there for two and a half hours without a break and just have the audience in stitches the whole time. I'm not shocked that he could talk for two and a half hours. Really not shocked. We here on the Matt Townsend Show offer you unbiased news such as Date Night with Dr. Matt. Totally not a plug for Matt at all. 
Okay, well, Caitlin Thomas is here. She's going to tell us about some of the... Well, I'll give a tease here in a second. But before we get to her topic of bad Valentine's Day gifts, I wanted to talk about a good Valentine's Day gift that I received once upon a time. And not just because my mother may be listening right now, but uh, I remember having to take my oldest brother to the airport on Valentine's Day. And I had, let's just say, a kind of a clunker of a car, and I barely made it, and it overheated, and I had to keep adding water, and suffice it to say, I didn't make it home. And it was Valentine's Day, and several hours had gone by, and it was just a miserable, overcast, horrible day. And so my mom was going to leave her car where my car had broken down so that I could drive home and the tow truck guy could tow away my hunk of junk. So as I opened her minivan, uh, sitting there on the steering wheel was a little heart box of chocolates with a note that said something to the effect of, I know you've had a horrible day. I hope it goes better. Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, that was nice. And then I had a tear. Oh, that's so cute. That's exactly how Matt would have told that story, by the way. Yeah, somebody, I told you, I was just telling you, somebody left a surprise Valentine on my car. Don't know who it is because I haven't been on a date in months, so I'm not really Mm. quite sure. It's probably like my dad. We here on the Matt Townsend Show do not uh, leave subtle hints that certain producers need to go on dates. Don't worry, Matt talks about this every time I come on here. But, you know, Valentine's Day is great, and, and we know all of the things that we're supposed to buy. There's flowers, there's chocolates, there's you know, thoughtful little gifts and notes and dates you're supposed to go on. And that's great. Like, I feel like it's pretty commercialized. People know that. But uh, what about all the things that you shouldn't get? Mm. I think that's what we really need to know. The beef jerky bouquet? Hey. Right. If you're giving that to a man. Depends on who you're giving it to. That could work. But, like, first of all, if you're a man and you're going shopping, I think this is mostly men giving to women. Here's what not to give, in case you're wondering tonight. If you bought your wife or your girlfriend a weight scale for Valentine's Day, you're probably going to get dumped. Ooh. <laughs> are, you, are you listening, Colin? Bad. Not a scale. Uh, I'm going to go return the scale, I guess. Do not give a scale. Somebody did that. This is on this website, and this is stuff people have done. Um, and it, they used to sell chocolate scales to lighten the mood to make you laugh, but that's still a bad idea. That's like that movie Spanglish where the mom buys her daughter clothes that are just a, that are too Little small too for small. her yeah. to tell her you need to lose weight. Just a bad idea. Don't don't do that. Um don't even if your wife is getting older and she's starting to age, don't buy her the wrinkle reducing pillow. The there's a pillow that will reduce your wrinkles. Apparently you lay on it and it's supposed to put some I don't know, soak your face. Well, I don't I don't know what these things are. I just Roll my eyes at whatever man. You know, I can see why he thought that was a good idea. Like, I can see the forethought, but just don't do it. That's well, not, mean, today's not the day. Someone, you know, like your wife or significant other complains about it. Guys always want to fix things, so maybe. I know, I could see that, but just wait yeah. until March. Like, just give it as a, like a, a casual gift. Don't give it on Valentine's. Maybe we're reading that wrong. Maybe the pillowcase is, is wrinkle-free. Like, you don't have to iron it. No, yeah. I saw a picture. Okay. Hmm. Don't buy her that. Um, Also, if you're going to try and be romantic and set up a mood, like, and people want, like, a nice dinner with candles and you want it by a fire. And so uh, apparently this one boyfriend thought it would be a good idea to go buy the fake fire DVD and play it on his TV. (laughs) What's wrong with that? Tacky. (gasps) 
Don't do it. B- but what if there's music in the background? No. No, Jeff, no. But it's on Netflix. We didn't We didn't have a fireplace in no, our last Jeff, home. No. And I wanted a fire. I wanted a real fire okay, look. Okay, well then go buy... No, don't buy don't buy the DVD. At least buy like you can go buy those fake fireplace like things. That's better than a fake fire DVD playing on your TV. I think the best one was uh, during Christmas time. Uh, the one with Nick Offerman. It's just a fireplace and Nick Offerman sitting on a leather couch yeah. with like I need to look that up. A cup of whiskey. I would watch that. It's like. A, Three hours of just him. Just him. You've just burst my bubble. It probably is going to ruin the mood. Valentine's Day. You've ruined my mood. Sorry about it. <laughs> Whatever. Um, if your girlfriend or, you know, I guess it would only be girlfriend is dropping hints you know, about wanting a man to commit. Um, apparently, some guy thought it would be funny to buy her this fake engagement ring mug. So it's a cup, but like the handle on the side is a ring that goes that your ring finger slides into and then you hold the mug. Oh, a bad idea. He that got, sounds he mean. He got dumped, yeah. Yeah, that's cruel. Don't do something like that. Don't fake a proposal on Valentine's Day in any way. That's just such a bad idea. She won't think it's funny or charming. That's I like, don't think. That's like giving a dog a fake something or like, you know, teasing like, him with a piece like of food, food on a string. Taking it away. It's just rude. And don't misconstrue my <laughs> words. I did not. You just uh... compared women to dogs, but it's fine. We're going to just oh pretend like that didn't happen. Jeff is hey, not doing well I'll today. T- I'll tell you this. I've fallen for the dollar on a string trick. It's embarrassing. Cut you down. But was it on Valentine's Day? It may have been. It was that at Knott's Berry Farm. That just makes it cruel. Don't, don't not buy any fake proposal looking gifts. That's not. That's mean. Bad idea. Especially if she's really serious about it. Like, that's a, that's a big thing. That's an important thing. Yeah. You should take it seriously. Or, but like, get whatever. down on your knee and to then tie just your tie shoe. your shoe. Yeah, actually, oh. that's horrible. Oh, a prank. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't do it on Valentine's Day, so I guess you're uh, – she must still like you. Do not buy um, – there's apparently this uh, – it's a pillow, but it's a pillow that you lay on. Is it the wrinkle-free on. pillow? No, no, no. Is no. the one this that looks is, like a boyfriend? Yeah, it's the boyfriend pillow. That'd be the best. <gasps> so it's got a big arm to... and it can come around and cuddle her so that you don't have to. That'd be the best Freaky. way to break up with a girl okay. on Valentine's Day. Here you go. This will just, <laughs> See, that's exactly this will what this is saying. Absence. If you want to get dumped, buy her this gift. I have to beg my wife to snuggle. Well, then they, that's why they made this boyfriend pillow, but I still think it is a really can, bad idea. Can we get one for the men? Can I have like a snuggle pillow? We, you could probably buy it and just put pink on it instead of Side blue. note, if you're <laughs> begging your wife to cuddle, make sure you uh, go to Matt Townsend's date night. We were there. <laughs> We were there, and there has not been any cuddling. Well, it's Valentine's Day, so I don't know. Things could change for you. Then it hurt my feelings. I'm just trying to do my Matt impression. Um, apparently there is this little thing. It's called a a Haley Holitosis Kissometer. I don't know. Halitosis. Halitosis. Mm. Oh, look, he knows all about it. Apparently, it's supposed to like gauge how bad your breath is. I'm just gonna back up. Um, a few and inches from you. a boyfriend gave this to his girlfriend for Valentine's Day, thinking he was funny, and she got pretty offended by it. Ooh. So there was no kissing for him on Valentine's so Day. It's kind of like the so mood you ring get of a, bad breath. If you want to get a nice, you know, smooch from your significant other, probably shouldn't give him the kissometer. <laughs> bad idea. Oh. Okay. Um. Oh, here's my favorite one. This is the tacky of all tackiness. Some guy was trying to be unique and get something different. And and his wife was really outdoorsy. She liked to hike and be in the mountains and um, especially in the desert. She really liked being out in the desert and exploring and all that stuff. So he thought it would be good to buy her 
a necklace made from this company that takes the head of real rattlesnakes and <gasps> makes it into a necklace. Oh, my. <laughs> he bought her a rattlesnake head necklace and gave it to her on Valentine's Day. Oh. Like, that was a good idea. Isn't, Come on, honey. You like the desert. Isn't right? that considered a good luck charm, you, though? You like animals. You like you like these, right? Uh, but it's a good was, luck charm, I, isn't it? Where was his mother? He should have asked his mom first before he bought that. We've reached a special time in our relationship <sighs> where I give my significant other a severed... Serpent head. head. Would gift cards be a suitable uh, Valentine's gift? I like gift cards. My mom gave me one for Valentine's this morning. I feel like gift cards are kind of just, I don't know, they have to be with a Valentine's card if you yeah, want they, it to be. Well, inside. and like with a box of chocolates. Again, I think and it then, depends on where it is. Like don't give them a dentist gift card or something. Well, okay, speaking of dentists and jewelry, there's a website that where you can send them your teeth and they'll make jewelry Ugh. out of your teeth. And a man gave his dead tooth bracelet to his girlfriend or wife i don't remember what, what it was, was it a ring i think i've seen these, that. these are human... maybe it was a ring i don't know but that's so gross it? these are it's human beings right human beings that okay. do this. don't do not make jewelry out of your teeth just don't do it just go with the classic flowers chocolates if if, if all else fails and you have no idea flowers and chocolates winner every time so this valentine's day go with the cliche or instead you know just show her you love just show your significant other that you love them by serving them even better you don't even have to spend money love it Caitlin Thomas. Happy Valentine's You've Day. nailed it again, and you've given me some uh, food for thought because I don't have a present for my wife yet. Well, now you know what not to buy. Yes. That is a great place to start, too. <laughs> Caitlin Thomas, we appreciate you and wish you a happy Valentine's Day, even though you're working. You can still have fun. I do what I can. And go find out who that secret admirer no is. Kidding. And hopefully it's not your ex-boyfriend. That would be awkward. <laughs> All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue celebrating Valentine's Day. We're all about love here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. It is Tuesday, February 14th, and that means it's Valentine's Day. We've been celebrating it here throughout the program this morning, and we wish Dr. Matt Townsend a happy Valentine's Day there in lovely Las Vegas, where, uh, yeah, apparently he uh, said, well, he said he wouldn't be doing any gambling, but Caitlin Thomas seems to think he has done a little bit. But we won't tell him we know until we're on the air. Uh, Happy Valentine's Day. We're going to be talking to BYU Sports Nation at the end of the hour. And coming up here in a little bit, we'll also be speaking with Dr. Ron Hager, one of our perennial favorites. He's going to be talking to us about sitting. So nobody sit. Don't sit. When he gets here, just stand up. Get your chair out of the way. I just pushed mine back because according to him, we are sitting ourselves to death. So he's going to be talking more about that in just a moment here on the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, we will also have our hero story of the day at the end of the hour. But before we do any of that fun stuff, let's talk to Terry South, who's got the news of uh, what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? 
with, uh, as this says, President Donald Trump taking a nothing-to-see-here stance on National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's resignation. As we heard from several people this morning, we hope we just move on from this and nobody talk about it or one one, one representative from New York talked about we don't need to pile on here do just we, move on he's he's out of he's resi- he's resigned just move on just do don't we, worry about do it do we know if Trump asked for his resignation or did Michael Flynn just offer it uh, up the story is that it was offered it says Flynn okay. quit hours after the Washington Post reported that justice department the justice department warned the white house that flynn had discussed sanctions with russian uh, the russian ambassador before trump's inauguration and could be subject to blackmail that story had i think nine sources i read this morning usually sources have two three this had nine so they're like do you think they had eight they're like oh we need one more just to really make it sound one more and then i'll resign one more yeah (laughs) so flynn said in his resignation letter that he had inadvertently briefed pence with incomplete information so that would be lie. No, alternative facts. Could well depends on your point facts. of view. And said that he apologized to Pence and to Trump. That, and uh, it says that is enough for Representative Jason Chaffetz, who sits on the Oversight Committee, who said there is no need for further uh, need to investigate. He says the Flynn situation is taking care of itself. Senator Marco Rubio wasn't so sure. He assured reporters Tuesday that the Senate Intelligence Committee is investigating Russian interference into the election and post-election activities. And Senator John McCain had previously expressed confidence in Flynn, but backtracked Tuesday. Flynn's resignation raises further questions about the Trump administration's intentions toward Vladimir Putin's Russia, McCain said. And uh, later, Donald Trump actually tweeted out, it says, The real story here is why are there so many illegal leaks coming out of Washington? Uh, Wait a minute. What? No, it's like that's not the real issue here. Yeah, the real issue is that there's so many leaks, and he goes, "Are these leaks going to continue to happen as I deal with North Korea and other issues?" And the answer is probably yes, because they've been happening ever since he took the oath. Hmm. So the search is on. They have three candidates. There's an interim candidate at the moment, moment, and they Kellogg. will move on. Man by the name of Kellogg. He's uh, great. We'll see. <laughs> Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has scheduled six confirmation votes for this week for Trump cabinet appointees and just appointees in general. Votes for uh, Representative Rick Mulvaney to lead the Office of Management and Budget, Scott Pruitt to lead the Environmental Protection Agency, Wilbur Ross to head the Commerce Department, Representative Ryan Zinke, uh, Zinke to be the Interior Secretary, Ben Carson to lead the Ho- Department of Housing and Urban Development, and former Texas Governor Rick Perry to be Energy Secretary. So all of that in four days because wow. they go on uh, President's week, President's Vacation Day week. They have a week off next. Right. right? So, so they're done Friday. They have to get all this done in four days. There's six So, But so far, Trump is batting 100 with his nominees minus Michael Flynn. Well, I mean, that worked out, you know, yeah, he got through. initially. Yeah. So he's batting 100 so far. And uh, officials in California were racing against weather Tuesday, struggling to shore up the Oroville Dam's emergency spillway before more rains pummeled the area and placed the structure in even greater stress. Engineers have been trying to lower the water level in Lake Oroville, which lies behind America's tallest dam. But more rains are forecast for later in the week. Nearly 190,000 people remain out of their homes because the risk of catastrophic flooding. Uh, They keep saying a 30 foot wall of water could go if this dam breaks whoa yeah and there's all kinds of people that live below in the valleys below this dam so they're trying to you know kind of avoid that uh, yeah be a good idea might be a good the, idea the emergency spillway developed a hole in it sunday it's like a big pothole 
And so they let water go down the emergency spillway, which just caused more of the hole to open up. And now it's just a big – it's all broken and messed up. So then they started sending it down an emergency spillway, which is the side of the, of the hill. Mm-hmm. So all these trees and stuff start you know, flowing down the, into, the, into the valley. It's collateral so, damage. Yeah. At one point they were letting um, the equivalent of an Olympic swimming pool full of water a second down the spillway. Oh and all they're, all they're trying to do is lower the level of the lake – by 50 feet because of the rain coming later in the later in the week that's going to fill it back up. Mm-hmm. So people are going to be out of their homes for maybe two weeks. Oh, my goodness. Because of the cycle of rain that keeps coming through. And this, this lake is full, so they keep having to let all the water out. And last year it was almost empty. Wow. So it's filled up. It says because the water levels are so high, the emergency spillway, which appears to be eroding, could unleash a wall of water under the communities below if it does collapse. And so that's what they're worried about. Well, Finally – Kentucky, we wish them well. Kentucky Fried Chicken wants to help you celebrate <gasps> Valentine's yes. Day. Yes. They have offered people a chance to win a chicken bouquet for Valentine's <gasps> Day. The bouquet is composed of popcorn chicken, crispy strips, and drumsticks. The limited edition item, only available in New Zealand. Oh, uh, come on. So for our international listeners. So <laughs> notice, I noticed that you timed that perfectly with Ron Hager's yeah. entrance into the studio, right. as always. I, I save the, the healthy food <laughs> for when he comes in. So it says, as, as Valentine's Day approaches, it's today, obviously, flowers are predictable, perfume cliche, chocolate, you know, everyone gets that. What about and, – and then it's it's here. They have a bouquet. It's all wrapped up in, in cloth and everything, and there inside is a popcorn chicken – Basically, it gives you a bucket of chicken that you can hand out as a bouquet of flowers. If that were an engagement ring, I would say I do in a heartbeat. Right. Wow. My goodness, that looks tasty. But there's only 20 available per location in New Zealand. Oh. So you got to hurry if you're in New Zealand. I'm just going to go to KFC and make my own. Couldn't be that hard. It's just not, it doesn't have the official logo, though, so it's not... Hmm. It's not as legit. Yeah. By the way, a minute ago, I mentioned that Trump was batting 100, and then I realized that's actually a horrible batting average. Horrible. He's batting 1,000, what I meant to say, as far as his nominees going through. It's, right. it's just baseball. Even if some of them are being traded and, uh, you know, being going down to the minor leagues, so Poss- to speak. Possibly investigated, yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah, it just depends. Which happens in baseball, you know, you got to have somebody that juices up. Mm. And uh, then there's an asterisk on their baseball that uh, – anyway, yeah. <laughs> we won't get there's into no that controversy. But uh, interesting. Oh, okay. If my wife is listening, I hope she's in the car right now going to KFC. Actually, she's at the doctor, so that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> By the way, earlier we played a sound clip. In fact, let's play it again. Clip uh, three. You are the first member of the GOP uh, that we have had a chance to talk to about this no word from ryan no word from mcconnell uh when you have a man of flynn stature resign and in his own letters saying that he misled maybe even lied to other members of the white house why is everybody so quiet uh well it's uh, uh valentine's day and i guess they're having breakfast with their wives. so that was the excuse early on that it, apparently it's valentine's day so the leaders of the republican party can't comment yet they're having breakfast with their wives they're having breakfast but they've commented they think it's a good thing that he has stepped down they think it's horrible that he of the things that he did and no word on what they think about for investigations valentine's day can cure so many ailments right. and cover so many sins 
we, we all we should just be able to get away with anything on Valentine's Day. Possibly. But avo- <laughs> avoiding congressional investigations, I'm not sure if that's the yeah. best excuse. But they were having breakfast with their spouses. Yeah, it's Valentine's Day. Come on. I didn't even have breakfast with my spouse today. Have some soul. But I love seeing the news clips that are going to be in all the comedy shows tonight. Oh, yeah. So however you want to do it. Some people celebrate Valentine's Day with chocolates and KFC, and other people celebrate it with resignations. Could be. Anyway, um, I hope that wasn't mean-spirited. But, uh, wow. Well, we hope that uh, President Trump can find somebody soon, and hope, hopefully somebody won't be blackmailed by the Russians. Nah. Not, not going hap- to happen? It's too early. Too early. Yeah. They're, they're going to wait. There has to be some juicy stuff before they can use the blackmail. Yes, and we know that uh, this next uh, nominee will uh, undergo extreme vetting. Extreme. Whatever that entails, yes. I would love to find out what that is. I don't know because uh, some of the people they've uh, said that need extreme vetting already went through two to three years of vetting Hmm. to get into the country, and now we're going to extreme vetting. So I'm not sure what that means. Maybe there's a pat-down involved. Hopefully that was done at some point along the way. Um, Maybe you do a front flip off of something. Like a pop culture questionnaire. There you go. <laughs> Make sure you're really acclimated to the U.S. culture. Yeah. yeah. My mom, uh, I, I think she didn't have her passport with her. Some, or She didn't have some form of ID with her. And she was asked, what is the capital of North Dakota? Hmm. Easy. And I don't know if she said Fargo, which is not correct. By the way, I believe it's Bismarck, but she didn't know. It's not Bismarcky. That's a different guy. Uh, yeah, my best. So uh, yes, know your state capitals. Huh. Know your pop culture, and uh, just be prepared for a pat down. All right. Those are some tips on how that to get through immigration that carry no weight. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, we've got Terry. Where is the most awkward place you've lost your keys before? Or the worst place you've lost your keys? Hmm. Where did I lose my keys? I don't know if it was really a, a place because I never found them. Hmm. So I, I don't know where I lost them. They're the last, the last place that they were. That's where they were. Well, yeah, but I don't know where that is. It just, I, they were just sort of disappeared. I would always get so annoyed when my dad – I'd go to my dad and say, I've lost such and such and I can't find it anywhere. I've looked everywhere and I can't find it anywhere. And he said, well, did you find them? No. Well, then you haven't looked everywhere. <laughs> no, I didn't. And as a kid, that's so infuriating. I didn't lose the keys, but I did lock the house. Okay. Get in the car, start the car, then get out of the car and just out of habit because I need to get something out of the house. So I got out of the house and just out of habit, locked the door, shut the door of the car, went back to the door of the house. And now I'm locked out of the house and the car and the car's running. <sighs> I'm like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Now, now here's what I want to know next. At what point, let's say you've lost your keys in a very horrible place. Hmm. At what point do you just cut your losses and just say, I'm going to get some new keys? Well, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. there was a guy named Jack Handy that would do deep thoughts. Oh, I love those. Right? And he says, if you drop your keys into a river of hot, flowing lava, just let them go, man, because they're gone. 
<laughs> that was his tip if you lose your keys in lava. So maybe that's something to think about. And Phil Hartman would always do the voiceover, and now deep thoughts with Jack Handy. Yeah, and there's always something ridiculous yeah. like that. That is a, that's great advice. If you drop them in hot lava, let them go because they're gone. Well, here's another place that uh, if you drop your keys in this place, you're probably just going to want to let them go because there are consequences to every action. A blundering Chinese homeowner reached into a toilet to grab his dropped keys, then got his arm trapped. He was forced to call emergency services as he was stuck for several hours. The unnamed man believed he could rescue the set of keys that had fallen into the porcelain toilet. And oh, I got it. No problem. Yeah. yeah. No, no problem. Then he slipped deep into the pi- or the, the, the keys slipped deep into the pipes. Hmm. He shoved his hands into the sewage pipes in the hope of catching the keys, found that he could not pull his arm back out, with the limb having somehow being stuck in the bending angular pipe. He alerted his family with cries of help, and members of the city fire brigade were sent to his home. Firefighters said they tried applying soap and other types of washing liquid. Maybe some Drano might do the trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Just dissolve his But hand still right could not free him because his limb was too deep inside the sewage pipe. In the end, Man. they had to crack open the porcelain toilet and break parts of the PVC pipe to set him free. His keys, on the other hand, appear to have been lost forever. <sighs> well, there's a lesson learned there. What a great lesson, too. Don't stick your hand where you can't get it back out from. Or I don't. I'm I wonder if it out. was if it was an instinct because that sounds like something I would do instinctively. Like ah, I got to get those keys. Right. But uh, I wouldn't. I don't think I would shove them down into the pipe. Deeper. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's like to get it into the PVC. That's really something else. Yeah. And they must uh, have a different design than. We're yeah, they probably do. Here. They probably have. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's like clear in there right and then your there. hand bends and you can't get it back out and yeah what what happens if you grab the keys and so you have to make a fist and so and then you have to make the decision do you let go of the keys to retrieve your hand or do you hold on to the keys and then figure out another way out of that situation so are you telling me this man is a monkey i'm not sure are, are, isn't it the the yeah. monkey that sticks his hand to grab that food and he won't let go because he's too stubborn right Wow. Do you think he flushed the toilet to like get his hand deeper in? No, I think he flushed but, flushed but, the toilet to get try to get his arm out. Oh, okay. Wow. Does that work? Is that how it works? Not I guess sure. maybe. Like there's a, a physics problem here, and then I just fall asleep because it was <laughs> physics. So. <laughs> that reminds me of a Simpsons episode where they're digging a hole, and they've dug it so deep they can't get out of it, and so they decide let's keep digging, and then Chief Wiggum says, "No, no, no, dig up, stupid." Anyway, doesn't work. And in the uh, the words of Jack Handy, just let them go, man, because they're gone. They are down the drain. You've literally flushed your keys down the drain. Well, um, we're going to be, how's this for a segue? We're going to be speaking with Ron Hager, who's going to be talking to us about other places you sit and how uh, we are sitting ourselves to death interesting topic when we come back he is our health evangelist this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And now Sean O'Neill is filling in for Colin Tanner on the board. Welcome to the show. Hello. And happy Valentine's Day, by the way. 
We've been celebrating it all day here on the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, Ron Hager is joining us. He is our health evangelist. He probably noticed not only did Terry conveniently share that story about the KFC chicken uh, bouquet of flower or bouquet of chicken as he walked in because he is a very healthy individual, but he also probably noticed that we were all standing up. I, I, I did notice that, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. I was, in fact, I. From outside the studio, when I walked up the stairs, I thought, they're all standing. They must have read the outline for today. Well, and we had the security guard down there call us and alert us when you were coming up the stairs so we could shoot out of our chairs. That makes sense. Because you're talking to us about a very interesting and important topic, something that we probably don't think about all that much, which is sitting ourselves to death. Yeah. So talk to us about what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, I most people I don't think realize how much they sit and... Even if they did, a lot of people I know say, well, I'm very active during the day. You know, I get my exercise in, so it offsets, you know, the the amount of time I spend sitting. And some people may not have much of a choice, you know, like, for Mm -hmm. example, if they're a bus driver. It's not like you have the option to stand up and drive the bus. Some bus drivers spend all day on a bus. Uh, Or if you have an office job, uh, you know, maybe there are some things you can do to not sit so much. And we'll go over those ideas uh, a little bit later. But, you know, we talked about this idea of being sedentary uh, not too long ago. And uh, and then I had uh, some students in my class ask more questions. It got me digging around a little bit. And I was kind of surprised about how much research there actually is. And it, it threw me off uh, just a little bit because, you know, most research is on – the the benefits of being active, mm-hmm. you know, it's like what do you get if you're active? You know, you know, do you reduce your risk of heart disease, kind of thing? So it's all about how being physically active or exercising regularly reduces your risk of things. Yeah. More recently, though, probably in the last three to five years, there's been a number of studies that have come out that have, I guess, kind of flipped the coin and said, well, what about the, the this idea of you know, does your risk go up if you're not active? Mm-hmm. And specifically, sitting has been targeted. There's been a lot of observational studies and even a few, uh, you know, randomized trials uh, where they did an intervention. Um, and, and they found that, you know, sitting time has been linked to overall mortality, like death from anything. Wow. So so when I say sitting yourself to death, there's actually, you know, that's not that's not really much of a stretch. Right. And also increased risk for... Uh, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, obesity, uh, diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes. Uh, in one study published in 2009 in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, they looked at 17,000, about 17,000 Canadians and followed them for 12 years. So these are some, you know, because it takes time for people to die. You don't just, you know, uh, sit for eight hours one day and then you're dead. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a long-term process. And uh, the mortality rates... Per 10,000 person years of follow-up, that's just a way that – because everybody, you know, of all those 17,000-plus Canadians, they all contributed different amounts of time in the study before they became a case. Mm-hmm. And they became a case by dying. Wow. Because uh, you know, that was the variable of interest, right? Yeah. So once you're dead, you're not in the study anymore. So to kind of uh, equalize all that so you can compare things, they they do something uh, – they, they make adjustments for person years. Uh, so per 10,000 person years – uh, oh, and, and, and people were asked on a survey how much time they spend sitting. Do they spend uh, very little time sitting? Do they spend one quarter 
of their time sitting? So very simple questions. Uh, a half of their time sitting or almost all of the time sitting? And those uh, who sat very little uh, had 87 deaths per 10,000 person years in mm. this study. Those who sat almost all of the time, 161 deaths. Wow. So double. Yeah, so they had two times the risk of death yeah. if they sat a lot compared to almost never. So you talked a little bit about this when, when we first started the interview, but obviously it's it's not very wise to think that if I just exercise, I can just eat whatever food I want and right. be just fine. It'll, it'll you know, they'll e- even yeah. each other out. Yeah. So are you saying that even if we do exercise, if we're still doing a considerable amount of our time sitting down, is that, do they not even out? Yeah, no, they, they don't actually. Um you know, it, in, uh, in, in one study, this was done in Australia, uh, almost a quarter million uh, Australian adults were followed. This one was more short-term. Um, they only looked at uh, these people for about three years, an average mm-hmm. of three years of follow-up. Um, but uh, those, who, those who sat the most, which was eight to more than 11 hours per day, even though they had... Uh, more than two times the weekly recommendation for physical activity minutes. So here, here they're the most active and the longest sitters, and they had uh, 57% uh, increased risk of death. Wow. So even if they were the most active but they sat the most, they were still at higher risk than the least active who sat the least. So sitting does something to you, so do even these, in the presence of being active. Do these people have to triple the amount of activity, or are there is there a different solution that's going to be more effective yeah, for them? Yeah, the solution is not to sit so much. Yeah. Okay, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying – because then the other the, – kind of the mentality of people looking for the path of least resistance, right, is, is – uh, I've already stated that it doesn't matter if you're highly active. If you still sit a lot, you're at increased risk. In fact, you're – more risk than if you sit a little and are inactive. So then people might say, oh, well, as long as I don't sit, I don't have to be active. Right? Wow. <laughs> so so that's, not the, that, that's not the solution either. The solution is uh, to not, not sit for extended periods of time. And in fact, there were some really cool studies. Now, these were the, the randomized crossover mm-hmm. types of studies. They're a little more powerful study design where they do an intervention. And um, in, in one study... <clears throat> Uh, published in the British Journal of Medicine in 2012, uh, the researchers found that adults who spend um, about six hours a day watching TV uh, lost about 4.8 years of their life. So they were doing kind of an actuarial yeah. analysis. Uh, uh, that that actually translates into taking 21.8 minutes off your life for every hour of of time you spend sitting watching television. But some of those shows might, some people might argue that they're worth it. <laughs> yeah. Well, compare this to cigarette smoking, because this has been done for a long time. Yeah. You know, how, mu- how many minutes do you lose every time you smoke a cigarette? 11 minutes. You lose 11 minutes if you smoke a cigarette. Oh, my goodness. You lose 21 minutes if you sit for an hour. Uh, so, so sitting, uh, now, granted, it, I don't know because I've never smoked a cigarette, but it probably doesn't take an hour. So you're, yeah. not, you're not really equating time here. You're just equating two Two health risks. Yeah. And I guess in one sense you could say that sitting, you know, may, may be, you know, more dangerous than, than smoking. Uh, but in some of these, um, in some of these uh, randomized uh, type trials, 
they would have people uh, sit uh, for uh, you know an extended period of time, and then they would give them uh, a drink, like a known uh, glucose concentration. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's called an oral glucose tolerance test. And, you know, sometimes you get it done if you're being tested for whether you're diabetic or not. Yeah. And then they draw your blood, you know, periodically, you know, for two or three or even four hours sometimes after you drink this to see how your body's handling the glucose. Yeah. And uh, in in one of these uh, randomized crossover trials published in 2012 in the American Diabetes Association, they looked at the effects of uninterrupted sitting, sitting with two-minute bouts of light-intensity walking every 20 minutes and sitting with two-minute bouts of moderate-intensity walking every 20 minutes. So they had two activity groups every 20 minutes that either do moderate-intensity walking or light-intensity walking. And as I said, the subjects drank this glucose drink uh, after two hours of sitting. And those who walked for two minutes every 20 minutes had lower blood glucose concentration. Didn't matter if you did the moderate intensity or the light intensity. Yeah. So so every twenty minutes you get up and walk around and it helps you regulate glucose better, which means it enhances insulin sensitivity, decreases your risk of uh, you know certain chronic diseases like obesity or yeah. heart disease or even diabetes. Um, so you know it appears that sitting time with regular short activity breaks uh, you know, it's more effective than continuous physical activity. Another study looked at that. Interesting. So some people say, well, you know, I, I, I walked for 120 minutes. Well, in one study, uh, this study was published uh, in the American Journal of Clinical, or yeah, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed more effective glucose regulation in the group that walked uh, for one minute and 40 seconds every 30 minutes compared to sitting for nine hours and walking for 30 continuous minutes after prolonged sitting. So some people might say, well, yes, I've sat a lot, but I'm going to walk for an hour and a half or two hours. Yeah. But the intermittent, you know, breaking up that sitting time with even as little, you know, as one to two minutes of walking changes wow. everything. So so it, it's about – and so, so then you go back to the TV example, right? Mm-hmm. TV takes minutes off your life. Well, if you watch an hour of TV, I know a lot of people who, you know, will not watch a show – you know, unless it's pre-recorded, so they can whip through the commercials yeah, and right. all that kind of stuff. Maybe don't do that anymore. Maybe take advantage of those commercials, and during those commercials, get up and walk around. Maybe Go put maybe, the dishes away. Or maybe do yeah. some calisthenics. You know, do some sit-ups. Do some put. Do some kind of activity, and use those commercial interruptions. Yeah, uh, in your show, which normally drive you nuts, to maybe save your life. <laughs> yes. Oh man, that's I'm I'm gonna try that. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick break. There's another question I want to ask you about standing when we come back, and okay. then I want to see what we can do because clearly there are people who don't have an option; they have to sit down at work, like you mentioned. Yeah. So let's get some ideas on on uh, how they can get some help. And uh, have better health when we return. We're speaking with our health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this discussion. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Ron Hager, who is Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. And hopefully you're not sitting down as you're listening to this because 
Dr. Hager has been talking to us about sitting ourselves to death. And before you give us some some tips on what we can do, I wanted to kind of look at this from the complete opposite spectrum. Okay. And we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I'm curious what harm in there what harm is there from standing up too much? You know, probably not a lot, at least in terms of the things we're talking about today. Now, some people say, yeah, when I stand, you know, my back starts hurting uh-huh. or my knees start or my hips or that kind of thing. That's that's a little bit of a different issue. Now, you know, standing obviously requires a different level of fitness than sitting. You know, people say, well, when I sit or lie down, you know, all my pain goes away. Yeah. Yeah, but you can't sit and lie down forever. Eventually, you got to get up and move around. So the couch potato doesn't have maybe a lot of pain until they're right. required to get off the couch. And slouching always feels sure. better than standing Sure, straight. so that's a little bit of a different issue. We can probably talk about that some other time for people who yeah. you know, who, who say, okay, well, you know, standing's, yeah, I, I believe that's a great idea, but I can only do it for five minutes before my neck or my shoulders or my mm-hmm. back start hurting. You know, we, we can talk about that another time, but that has to do with posture and, you know, correct correct use of your muscles and things. So if you are at a desk... Is it better to have like a stand-up desk than a sit-down? This has actually become a pretty popular thing, and there have been some studies that have looked at um, uh, bicycle desks, standing desks. I've heard of Mm -hmm. treadmill desks. Treadmill desks. Mm -hmm. Marcus has a standing desk just down the hall. He does. Yeah. Yeah, and and those things can can be effective. Now, if if you don't have a standing desk, uh, you know, there's still some things you can do. A lot of times computer monitors are mounted on these, you know, movable arms, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could get one of those and hook it to your desk. So – you could raise your monitor, uh, you know, or or just get away from your desk for a little while. Now, one one idea that I really like is, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I work in this office, I've got my little space, and I pretty much, you know, sit all day. But I've talked to many people who, you know, engage in email conversations, uh, sometimes related to work, sometimes just for fun, and they're literally sending an email, you know, to somebody, you know, eighty feet away. Saying, hey, hey, what are you going to do for lunch today? You know, uh, get up, walk over, and actually communicate with that person. It, you know, uh, meetings. Now, this is kind of a novel idea. I've actually tried it a couple of times, mostly with students. So if a student says, hey, I'd like to come by during your office hours and talk about my grade. As soon as they show up, I say, walk with me. Mm. And we just go for a walk around the building. That's a great so, idea. So if you've got a meeting, even with even if it's with two or three or four people. You know, you could walk, and and if it's you know if you're just in some office building, you can you can just walk around the office, walk on different floors, whatever. Um, a habit that I've tried to make in my life uh, is to make a conscious effort to avoid conveniences. Hmm. Uh, so, like a like a drive up window, for example. Uh, sometimes this drives people in the car nuts that are with me, but you know because they <laughs> like the convenience. But I say no, I'm not using the drive up window. You know, I park, I walk in, uh, and then I walk back out. That, that that just gets you out of a sitting position in your car, even if it's just momentarily. And that's interesting because that and also with the email and, you know, meetings, these are good examples of things that we could do to improve our social skills too. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but the idea here, Jeff, is that people kind of have this mentality that, that it's almost like they have to, uh, you know, in, in today's culture, you do not have to look for excuses to sit. You've got to learn to change your mentality and look for excuses to not sit. We we are a society of professional sitters. We sit at church. We sit at school. We sit on the bus, on the train, on the plane, in the car, uh, at home. We sit at our desks. We, we sit at work. Uh, we do not have to look for excuses to sit. And one of the things 
I tell the students in my class when we talk about this subject is to do at least a, a week-long, seven-day sitting journal. You, mm-hmm. you time stamp every time you sit down so that, and you add it up every day over the course of a week, and you then divide it by seven, and you determine what is your average sitting time per day. And uh, according to the research, that should be less than four hours. Okay, and but you said earlier what we need to focus on is not necessarily focusing all of our sitting time to one chunk of time, but breaking that up and taking more frequent breaks instead of going out and just saying, oh, I'll just I'll walk longer later. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Wow. Well, and so much of things we do in our life, uh, like at work, you know, you, you tip the, the typical work schedule is maybe, you know, four hours at work and then you have lunch and then four hours after lunch. Uh, maybe there's a break in between those four hours, but that's still, you know, at a two-hour mark. Mm-hmm. Um, most students, you know, in in classes all the way from elementary school up through high school and college are anywhere from, you know, 60 to 90 minutes, you know, where you're sitting in the desk. Right. Uh, and so, so there's there's some... There's some things that can change here with, with uh, work environment, with school environment, uh, even teachers. You know, this in, is, in, in, yeah. in school could, could say, you know, hey, based on what I know, we're going to change some things in class and, and maybe give students opportunity. Now, I've I've mentioned this to my students before. I've said, uh, you know, how would you like to walk into a classroom and there's there's desks, kind of high desks, kind of like standing desks, but no chairs. And you, you you go to fifty minutes of class, and you've got a table that's maybe a little bit adjustable for you know people who are five foot four to six foot four, and uh, you know you can put your laptop up up on it, you can put your notes on it, but you stand or an exercise ball. Yeah. Okay. And that's one of the suggestions I've seen that's fairly common. You see that in offices. You see yeah. it in offices. Yeah. Because that that just requires a little more effort, a little more mobility, a little more stability. You have to balance, uh, and that's different than sitting. Yeah, uh, you know. So, how, how would you how would you feel if you walked into a college classroom or a high school classroom and there were no chairs, but there were just a bunch of these you know Swiss exercise balls, and you just kind of sat on those? I bet your students wouldn't fall asleep very easily. You might they might be a little more distracted with all the bouncing Maybe. and rolling around. But uh, I wonder. Yeah, I, do you know of any schools that are doing something like that? I don't know of any. That would be uh, an interesting study. I thought about maybe trying to do something in my class. Yeah, you know, with standing desks or. Uh, you know, it was interesting in the classroom I teach in on campus, um, they, they do some other things in that classroom on Sundays, and they have a piano in there. They've got a music stand, one of the kind of the adjustable choir, you know, music stands. And after we had this discussion in class last semester, uh, this girl in my class, she refused to sit in my class after that. She used that music stand, and she put her book and her notes and stuff out. And wow. she, she stood from that time every day for the rest of the semester. <laughs> So wow. it, it must have had an impact on her. But yeah. but my point is, she figured it out. She got creative. She said, I'm not going to sit as much as I used to. And and I guess that's the message today is to, to figure that out, to look for ways. Um, you know, uh, you know, even, you know, people say, you know, drinking water is healthy. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people bring a gallon jug full of water. And they say, you know, I drink this twice a day. That's awesome. But what if you, instead of bringing a gallon jug, what if you brought like a 12-ounce bottle and and you had to get up to fill it up Refill all the time. It, yeah. So you get up, you walk to the uh, the water fountain, and you fill it up. You say, oh, that, you know, that decreases my efficiency. Well, our efficiencies, our conveniences are robbing us 
of health benefit. So you have to realize that at some point, these things that are making us supposedly more efficient and more productive may actually be harming us in the long run. So like 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 I do with drive-up windows, I just say, I do not do drive-up windows. Nor mm-hmm. when I go to any ty- type of a parking lot do I look for the closest spot. I right. care less about the closest spot. I park, you know, as far away as I have time to walk. Yeah. Because it makes a difference. And and the message, I guess, too, is is this is this is a pattern that you develop in your life, a mentality that you develop, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, 90 minutes or 120 minutes of continuous activity. This is intermittent. This is stuff you interject all throughout your day, dozens of times throughout your day. And the research shows that's what makes the biggest difference in risk of mortality, overall mortality, death from anything, heart disease mortality, diabetes mortality. There's even some studies on cancer, endometrial cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, shows that when you when you have this intermittent attitude of of being active, your even your risk of those cancers goes down. Wow. Well, Dr. Ron Hager, thank you so much for man, we just have so many ideas now of things that we can do to not sit ourselves to death. And even if you're a boss, if you're a teacher, think of ways that you can bless the lives of your students and your workers by maybe making your workers rotate stations every 30 minutes or so. And if you're a teacher, try having them stand up and stretch and you'll see good results and you won't die as soon as you might normally. (laughs) Dr. Ron Hager, we appreciate you coming on the show again and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Happy Valentine's Day. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live healthier and happier and longer lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're playing that because not only are we about to uh, turn it over to our most excellent hosts of BYU Sports Nation, but today is the 25th anniversary of the film Wayne's World, and right now we're speaking with Spencer and Jerem. Spencer and Jerem, party on. Foxy lady. 25. We would never sell out, by the way. We just want to make that. (laughs) Yeah, that was the Hollywood version of Wayne's World, right? (laughs) Party like, on, Wayne, and party on, Garth. Isn't that awesome? It's this SNL sketch, and they're like, oh, we'll just make a full movie. Brought to you by Noah's Arcade. <laughs> Come bust a move where the... Yeah, I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> Such a good movie. So good. I didn't know it was 25 years. It came out on Valentine's Day? It sure did. 25 weird, years. They had one of those... Really in 1992. Yes. I Do you remember nine. where you were? Oh, man. Valentine's Day in 1992, I was in fourth grade. My girlfriend was Krista Paul. Ooh. Um, no relation to Chris Paul of the Clippers. Trying to think. <laughs> no, it's P-O-L-L. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's about all I remember. It was uh, memorable. Mrs. Mrs. I'm trying to remember my teacher's name. Because we exchanged Valentine's. Like, that was one of my favorite days in elementary school. You know, you found out all your crushes, like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. You made the <laughs> little like the, it. It the cheap awkward. receptacles that you put on your desk. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You our... can't pray in school, but you can discuss <laughs> who you're crushing on. 
publicly. So <laughs> I know the other day we talked to you guys about the bouquet of beef jerky. Did either of you get that for each other? The the uh, the brocade. It was the brocade. Oh, yeah, brocade. Yeah, that's really funny. The broquette. And now there's one. <laughs> now there's one. I can't remember if it was Singapore. It, it's uh, not here, but they're doing. Oh, New Zealand. Terry told me, New Zealand. They're doing a uh, a not a brocade. A brocade of chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken. So what do you call that then? Hmm. A Colonel K? I don't know. Or a A heart attack. It's a drumstick bouquet. bouquet. A drumstick bouquet. A death death K? (laughs) See now that that is the key to my heart right there. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I know we only have about a minute or two left with you. What can you tell us really quick is coming up on your show on BYU Sports Nation? Listen, it's a day of love. And as we've learned from our good friend Brack on Space Ghost Coast to Coast, this is where a man goes out and asks a woman on a date. She orders a salad. He orders a big piece of beef. And that is what we call love. Okay? So with that in mind, we are asking everyone across BYU Sports Nation to tell us, which BYU athlete is the most loved of all time? And current. We'll answer mm. both of those. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Sean has an opinion. Oh, no, no. Oh, he's telling me to wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> hey, wrap it up. And that's all we have. Don't answer it. Stop talking. Jazz IU football signee came in a helicopter to announce it. He's awesome. Plus, Shea Collinsworth. She ran the fifth fastest indoor 800 ever. Yeah, it's easy to love record performances. Why? She'll be in the studio. All right. Well, BYU Sports Nation is all about the love. Spencer and Jerem, party on. That we are. Peace. I wish you many brocades. <laughs> all right. We'll talk to those guys tomorrow. Oh, Wayne's World. Sean, do you remember seeing Wayne's World in the movie theater? Yes, I do. Do you remember bobbing your head during the Bohemian Rhapsody scene? Uh, I sang along. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was in the car with them, yeah. even though I was in the studio in the in the movie theater seat. You know what's interesting? I and you could correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I'm pretty sure that song didn't have the traction that it had until after oh, that movie came out. That is very true. Very true. Oh, how often does that happen in movies where there's a song that's kind of I wouldn't say sitting on the shelf, but a song that's not as popular as it should be and deserves to be mm-hmm. until it shows up in a movie. Uh, any, can you think of any other examples that have had – it's had that much of an impact on a song? Not right off. Maybe – maybe uh, I don't know. Uh, a Dude Looks Like a Lady from uh, Mrs. Doubtfire maybe? That was in Mrs. Doubtfire. That's right. Yeah, the montage where he's like doing all the chores. Exactly, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to sabotage Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> yes. What a great movie. Oh, and you know uh, that's it's a good example too of how much music can make uh, can elevate a movie too. Oh yes! Wow! Yeah, I uh, I think one of my favorite parts from Wayne's World is when they're sitting on the hood of the car, looking up at the airplane in the skies, and Garth improvises the line. Dana Carvey improvises the line. Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he dressed up in a girl <laughs> like a girl bunny? <laughs> No, no. Oh, me neither. I, I was yeah. just asking. Yeah, yeah. What a great movie! Twenty-five years ago, and yeah, unfortunately, you guys are talking about being in elementary school twenty-five years oh ago. My oh my gosh! Yeah. I don't want to hear it. Unfortunately, you know they didn't. Things didn't sit too well between Dana Carvey and Mike Myers and the director Penelope Spheris. 
uh, or I can't remember Spherus or Spherus. I think it's Spherus. But I think they've patched things up. Twenty five years hope. have gone by, and you know. I loved the sequel, too, Wayne's World 2, hmm. even though it wasn't as well-received by audiences or critics. It didn't but have the novelty of the first one. so It did have that great scene where they're doing the uh, dubbed fight oh, yes, between him and, and, uh, and his girlfriend's father. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh. Well, if you like Mike Myers. Love him. Would have to suggest that you watch So I Married an Axe Murderer. One of the funniest movies yes. ever made. Yes. And one of the best use of one of the best uses of the cameo, by the way. Definitely. So many great cameos. I won't give too many away, but Michael Richards mm-hmm. has a scene stealing <laughs> uh, appearance in that movie. And Stephen Wright as an airline as an airplane pilot. Yes. <laughs> and I think Michael Richards uh, if you look him up in the credits it's just insensitive man. Yes. Yeah. That's all I'll say about that. Mm-hmm. Great movie. And uh, one that actually Mike Myers didn't write, I don't think. If he, I don't know he if he did. He may not have. Yeah. He needs to do more movies like that and less of these big budget, you know, toilet gag movies. Nah. Anyway, as you know, we like to end the show with our hero story of, to, of the day and especially on Valentine's Day. Well, this story has to do with a Texas grandmother calling her grandson a true hero. Renee Preston was home alone in late August when she became ill. My sugar dropped to 59. I was talking funny and started really feeling strange, said Preston. That's when her grandson, Adam Kirsten, jumped into action. He called his grandfather on the phone and then he got a glass and poured me a glass of orange juice, said Preston. He then handed me a cookie and said I had to eat it. A short time later, help arrived, but Preston says by the time that happened, everything was under control. Kirsten, five years old, is from Somerville, Texas, and wants to be a firefighter. I think we all wanted to be firemen when we were that age, but uh, I don't remember doing anything that heroic when I was five years old, so good for, good for him, good for Kirsten. Well... It's Valentine's Day. Not only should you look for opportunities to make those around you feel good about themselves and feel loved, but look for opportunities where you can really make a difference in someone's life. And not not always saving their lives, literally, but just improving it, making it that much better, that more bearable, and, and really that much more happy just by finding little things to do to serve them. We'll, uh, we'll call it good for today, and when we come back tomorrow... We will continue the important discussions and topics, and we'll continue to talk about love and and being kind to others. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us.